Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. After a little bit of a break, we are finally back on our Gundam bullshit with one of the bullshittiest Gundams, uh, Gundam Build Divers, one of the most recent Gundam shows, and maybe the worst. We'll talk about that uh, today as our Weekly Suit Gundam topic, and that'll be the bulk of today's podcast because we've got a lot we're working on. But before we get into all of that, I did want to hit some other stuff just to make sure there's nothing else we need to get off our chest. But Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, uh, you know, I spent a lot of this week watching Gundam Build Divers, which is a bad TV show. Um, but I have been uh, playing a good game, though, which has helped sort of, like, you know, cleanse out some of the bad taste of Gundam Build Divers, which is I finally started playing um, Horizon Forbidden West. I, I had to take a long break from big video games after Elden Ring because that was, like... <laughs> so all-consuming um that's very and, much where i'm at right now yes yeah, yeah. It, it is just like a thing you kind of spend your what feels like an entire lifetime playing elden ring and like living that whole game and you're like i gotta just do other stuff for a while with video game stuff um, but it's been long enough and i actually started playing it a little bit before we did last week's podcast but i was too early i didn't really want to mention it because i had like literally only played like two hours um at this point i'm now um I would say maybe about 10 hours into the game. Um, I'm outside of the sort of initial zone, a lot like the first game, uh, Zero Dawn. There's kind of like an initial zone that is kind of like a vertical slice of most of what the game looks like with a bunch of the different like activities, but it's a very condensed area. And then after that, you get let out into the larger uh, open world. And so I'm a little bit into that larger open world is where I'm at. Um, and so far, I'm having a really great time with it. I think it's a fantastic sequel. That if you liked Horizon Zero Dawn, if you liked that world, if you liked the storytelling, the characters, and you liked the gameplay, in particular the combat, which I think is uh, fantastic, I think is kind of best in class in terms of these sorts of open world games, um, like Horizon Zero Dawn is kind of unmatched in that category in terms of its combat. Um, and Forbidden West just is one of those sequels, kind of like an Assassin's Creed 2 or Mass Effect 2, where it really takes a good look at every single element of the initial game um and especially in this instance where it was kind of like a you know initial effort from guerrilla games that had never made a game like horizon before um and took a look at everything that was in that game and thought about how do we improve this refine it add elements and kind of really flesh out the whole scope of the game design because if i were to describe the game design of horizon zero dawn overall i would say it feels very like segmented feels like everything in horizon zero dawn has like a very specific okay you're in like this mode and you're doing this thing and the combat is very sort of rigid in its design um it's not hugely flexible um and forbidden west takes a look at all that kind of rigidness and mixes it mixes it all up and it's a much more kind of like fluid game design approach where it feels like you're kind of 
it rewards a lot more kind of creativity in the combat. It gives you a huge amount of additional options, lots of more um, like sort of different kinds of special moves you can unlock in the skill tree um, that opens up all of the different existing weapons, lots of new weapons. Um, they've completely changed the entire melee combat system, which was very sort of vestigial in the first game. Now melee combat is like a full system with multiple different combos and things that you can use strategically to have different effects on the machine enemies um, and human enemies, and it's effective in different ways there. And you can mix and match it with ranged weapons in different kind of combos effectively. So all the combat is full, the melee combat's fully integrated to the rest of the combat system. Um, it's just like every element of the game feels like it has had a huge amount of new life and creativity breathed into it. And then the whole structure of the game kind of allows all that stuff to flow into one another. Um, there's also a huge amount of new mobility, which is awesome. It's much more open in terms of things you can climb. It's not like Breath of the Wild or Genshin Impact, and I wouldn't really want it to be. I don't, I don't think every game needs to have, you can literally climb on every single surface, um, but it's much more, um, it's much more free, particularly in combat arenas for you to maneuver around. There's a grappling hook that you can use to kind of zip line to surfaces and launch off of them for aerial attacks. There is a hang glider, like a Breath of the Wild thing, so you can um, use that to have more kind of vertical combat encounters. Um, and then there's also underwater stuff that they've fleshed out, which they showed in a bunch of the trailers, which is awesome. Um, and so that's kind of the main impression I've had of the game so far, is just like looking at all the game systems the RPG elements like the loot and the skill trees that are all hugely fleshed out compared to the first game. And just really feeling like this is one of those sequels um, that feels like, like it will be hard to go back to the first game after you play this one because of how much it just so totally like kind of, I think realizes the fundamental design ambitions of Zero Dawn. That I like that game a lot and I think that game's very fun, but it was clearly like the first effort by that studio to make a game like that. And coming into Forbidden West feels like, okay, they took all that experience and have really kind of like nailed it home what they want this game to be. That's really cool. And that, you know, I feel bad for this game a little bit because its reception got very muted by Elden Ring launching one mm -hmm. week later, right? So yes. it, it did not have much time in the critical limelight. This is consistent with what I generally heard, which was the gameplay fantastic. I did, I did remember when this came out there was some consternation around story stuff and i don't know if you're far enough to even speak to that um yeah i can't speak much to like the main story but i'll say so far i've been really enjoying the story stuff like i think one thing that's nice about horizon is that they've always had really good characters and i think particularly the game has a great first hour that really feels like it's like a coming back at like like a season premiere for a season two of a tv show you really love of that like sense of oh you're like kind of they give every character from the original game that like was kind of notable gets a cool like kind of moment early in the game where they kind of get reintroduced um and there's a really great big kind of action sequence that opens up the game that kind of eases you back into the world um in the characters like if you haven't replayed zero dawn because i replayed that game um uh like a month or two before elden ring came out um but even if you haven't replayed it and if you're like a little bit sort of vague on some of the specific details they do a very good job of like kind of getting you back into the world um and and reintroducing you to all the characters and i think the thing so far with the story and again i can't speak to like the larger plot stuff because they haven't really played a lot of those cards yet it's very like early in that uh sense but the thing that i am having a good time with is i think they have a really great sense of aloy's character and where to kind of take her and it feels like they have a good character arc set out for her at least at the start i'll see how they kind of pay it off 
Um, but Aloy's character is that she's, you know, she spent the whole first game, she was an outcast. She was, she was exiled from her people and had to be raised by her kind of adoptive father, Rost, who is killed very, very early in the story in the first game. Um, and so her whole outlook is she's an outsider and she's not very comfortable around people. She's not really comfortable with people kind of hailing her as a hero after the events of the first game. And I think that characterization is really sharp and she keeps on trying to avoid people and keeps on trying to avoid like having to be the person that sticks around afterwards because that's just not who she is. And she's having to confront the ways in which her kind of like exile and outsider and very like lone lone wolf kind of mentality it has its advantages but it also has its drawbacks and it, it causes her to kind of hurt herself and her friends um and that's all stuff that they've started introducing early on and i think it's like a good strong core character arc idea that feels like it's different than what they did with her in the first game which was much more of a classic hero's journey like you know she has a mysterious birth and she has to learn like where she came from and her purpose in the world and all that kind of stuff like the first game is very much a hero's journey story for her and in this it feels more like getting into the nitty-gritty details of like who is she really as a person and what are her flaws and how does she need to overcome those um in a more kind of um nuanced way is what i feel like the story is setting up so far um but again i, I don't know where the overall story is going to go but so far what i've seen um, I think if you enjoyed the character writing and stuff in the first game, uh, so far it's been really good in Forbidden West. And if there's like maybe the biggest improvement of anything in Forbidden West is that the character animations in the like dialogue scenes are so good. It might be the best I've seen in any game. And it was a serious problem, I think, with Zero Dawn that like for the major cutscenes it was usually fine but any of the more incidental dialogue scenes had just like very robotic stiff animations in that first game um and just kind of slightly awkward animations and i think some of the vocal performances for the side characters in the first game were bad if the but the core cast was good um and all of that stuff in forbidden west has been totally shored up like the character models are absolutely gorgeous um they the animations are really realistic and the both the body animations and the facial animations it's just a really incredible performance capture um and then all of the actors so far have like all the returning actors and the new characters i've met i think all of them have really great performances and so the writing was always good in zero dawn but sometimes some of the way it was presented in game could be awkward and all of that stuff has been totally uh, smoothed over and it, it is i think certainly like in the top tier in terms of like performance capture um and and like representing a performance in game this is like some of the best of that stuff i've seen um so that's that's an area where the story has certainly improved quite a bit yeah that's all really cool i'm um you know i'm curious to see what kind of like life this game winds up having because it did just get like so dwarfed by Elden Ring at the beginning but you would have said that about the original game with Breath of the Wild and the original game is the best-selling PS4 mm -hmm. original um at least in terms of confirmed numbers um we know that hit 20 million and that's the highest for a PS4 exclusive that we know of so I'm sure this one has has done well there was some indication that sales dropped off quite a bit when Elden Ring came out but I'm sure this game will have a long tail um, at some point, I would love to play both of these. I've played some of the original. I have not gone through the entire thing yet. Yeah. No, they're really good games. Yeah, and I'm just very excited to play more of this game. And it's that thing of where, like, 
it, it's 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 nice that it is while it is an open world game it is just completely different than something like Elden Ring um so it's like it's it that's nice I think it would be very hard to try to play something else that would be trying to be like Elden Ring whereas this is just like you know if you like games like Ghost of Tsushima this is like broadly in that kind of realm of open world design and I think it, it's 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 a little it's like kind of that with a lot of Monster Hunter in its kind of core combat um, and so that is the thing that's nice is that while it is an open world game, luckily it is not, I like, I'm not thinking about Elden Ring at all when I'm playing it. Um, right. and, and so that it sort of avoids me having to ever make those comparisons. Cause obviously if you have to make those comparisons with almost any video game, uh, almost any video game is going to fall severely short. Yeah. Well, and that was, that was true of the original and Breath of the yeah. Wild. They weren't really similar at all, but they wound up in this weird people comparing them. And, and from everyone I know who played both, it's like, they're not really the same game in any way, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, if you're trying to measure, like, Horizon by Breath of the Wild's yardstick, Horizon's going to fall short. But similarly, if you try to measure Breath of the Wild by Horizon's yardstick with, like, the character writing and the combat design... Breath of the Wild is nowhere near as good in that regard as Ryzen because it doesn't care as much about those things. Um, right. So that's like very much where it is with the, these kinds of games. And yes, it is just the curse of this franchise that it always comes out a week before whatever like the big crazy game is of that year that isn't actually similar. But if you squint from far enough away, it seems vaguely similar because they're both open world games. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that this game will do just fine, have a long tail. Um, I'm, I'm having a great time with it. I do a little bit of... I know, you know, financial quarters and all of that stuff. I do kind of wonder Sony's logic in not making this like a May or June release. Like, mm -hmm. they knew Elden Ring was coming out. Like, this, this game would have fucking owned... Like, there's nothing coming out in the near future. Anyway, but it's yeah, all good. I, I imagine part of that is like, you delay a game so many times, and then it's like, you, you I, I imagine... Because that game got pushed like two or three times, and they're probably just like, we just gotta make yeah. sure we get it out. Right, exactly. Anyway, um, but that's cool. I am in uh, my recovery from Elden Ring mode, so I have been, uh, you know, playing around with a couple little different things, um, including I did, I did uh, a couple weeks ago, I did pick up a used copy of the Kimetsu no Yaiba game, the Hinokami Chronicles, mm -hmm. um, and I've played around a little bit in that, and I haven't like quite committed to playing it. I did just want to mention though. Jesus Christ, the graphics in that game are, like, amazing and capturing. Yeah. It's, like, not quite on the level of, like, a Dragon Ball Fighters, but remarkably close to something like that. And in 3D with the crazy stuff from Kimetsu is is really cool to see. So I do want to play more of that at some point. Um, but I have mostly been playing Genshin Impact and catching up on some things. Primarily now I have had time to dive into the Chasm area, which I had not done anything uh -huh. in yet. The chasm is a cool area. And yep. it at first you're like, oh, it's just this little area in the way. And okay, that's kind of cool. And then you go underground and you're like, oh. And then you go, oh, because it's a really big underground area. Um, very much in the vein of like an Enconomia in terms of what they've done. And that they give you like a cool, like special, you know, sort of device or gameplay gimmick. Um, and there's all this stuff down there. And I just today, uh, before we started recording, finished the new Archon Quest stuff with Don Slave. Uh -huh. um, which was really fun. And, you know, every time we see Dainsleif, the more you go, oh, this is why they got Kenjiro Tsuda. Because, uh -huh. like, this is a character with some real gravitas to him. And there's some really good story that comes around from all of that. So, anyway, uh, I've been having a lot of fun with that. The Chasm is a very fun area to explore. Um, and I've still got a ton of stuff to clean up just in all the different 
optional stuff going on there. Um, it's a very neat area. And mostly I'm just saving up all my Primo gems because I am hoping... I know they're going to be doing an Arataki Ito rerun uh, in the next month or so. Things have been pushed back a little bit. We can talk about that in a second. But uh, I really want that character. So I've just... I've got like 30-some wishes stored up and I'm just, you know, putting all my wishes in a fucking Scrooge McDuck vault and waiting. So anyway, it's been fun. I have also... I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I've been measuring up... Or uh, leveling up. I don't know why I said measuring up. Leveling up Zhongling. Um, uh-huh. You know, the uh, the fire girl with Guoba. And I've been having fun with that. And I also have done the same now with another four-star character who I'd had forever but never really played with, which was Ningguang. Um, mm-hmm. Because Ningguang was useful for a couple of things I was doing in the game, including the boss you need for Ito's material, which I've been grinding yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I finally got Ningguang all the way up to level 90. I had a five-star catalyst that I wasn't using on anyone, so I put that on her and leveled that up. Uh, Ningguang is ludicrously powerful. Why did no one tell me? Oh my god. No, yeah, she's very good. I think she got overshadowed a little bit when Ito came out because Ito, I think, kind of if you wanted to do like your have your main DPS character be a Geo character, I think Ito kind of stole her thunder slightly. Um, but no, I mean Ningguang is a great character, particularly around the launch. I remember there were a lot of people that mained that like realized that like kind of if you went off the beaten path in terms of like what seemed like the super strong DPS characters, that Ningguang was like up there. Um, around yes. launches being like one of the best DPS characters in the whole game. Um, yeah, because I used her a fair amount back then for kind of the same reasons that there was some stuff. I think it was particularly the um, uh, the water boss, which is a real motherfucker, uh, like the water spirit that summons the uh, like the little um, water monsters and stuff that you have to yes. fight in order to get your uh, materials from it. Um, and she was really good for that early on when I didn't have a good ice character because she just gave you a bunch of shields and then she's ranged so she can hit flying enemies and stuff. Um, so yeah, I haven't used Ningguang in a while, but yeah, she's always been quite good. Yeah, so I'm glad I leveled her up because I've fallen into a very weird team where I kind of put her in where I had Ayaka and then it's a team with, I've had Ningguang, uh, Zhongli, uh, 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 Kokomi and the Raiden Shogun, which is a weird team, yeah. but has been really good uh, for whatever reason. It's just like, because you've got, I, I've i realized that having Raiden Shogun and then anyone who has projectiles is just a great combination. Yes. Like Raiden Shogun and Kokomi I have together a lot because Kokomi is not really a main DPS, but if you put Raiden Shogun there and then have her sending water and electro out and you have the right build, she's crazy powerful. Mm-hmm. And then that also works with Ningguang. And then Zhongli is there to do his shields and stuff. It's been an, actually a very good team running around the uh, the chasm. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Raiden Shogun's uh, skill is that it's guaranteed to trigger if it hits something. Um, so it's just like... Because it, I, I used her a lot with Yoimiya to just blow fuckers up. Because oh, yeah. that's particularly fun because Pyro and Electro causes an explosion that knocks enemies around. Um, that if you're being like super hardcore serious about getting the absolute maximum amount of possible DPS is not necessarily going to get you that because it moves characters around in a way that causes them to be hard to group. But if you just want to like juggle fuckers like it's Tekken or some shit, like that's what you want because you just like you start hitting someone and they never <laughs> touch the ground again because they're just exploding in the sky forever. Um, yeah, no, yeah I, I, is a good combo with any ranged character for sure. Yes, and I'm just in a mode where I'm having fun running around the world and I'm not worrying about making the absolute strongest team possible. I just want to play with the different fun characters I have. So, you know, it's been it's been fun. That's what I've been doing. I like the Chasm. I like the Donslave stuff. I want more of that character. And I like our like annual or semi-annual journeys to visit with Dainslave and what he's up to is a fun tradition at this point in the game. I'm curious when we bring him in more fulsomely, but it's some very cool stuff. 
Yeah, and then now that you finish the Dainsley stuff, you can never look at hill trolls the, the, the same way again. What the fuck, Sean? Like, so yeah, that's... dark. Oh my god, I took screenshots of that. I was going to do a tweet. I'm like, this is the darkest shit in the whole game. They made, like, it's a backstory that, like, I feel like now I should go out in the world and, like, all of the world quests should change. Where instead of you go and fight the hill trolls, it's like you go help them. You, like, bring them food. You, like, go be nice to them. You, like, listen to them talk. You be their therapist. And, like, that's how you get your, like, ten Primo Gems a day. Like, that's what it should be. I don't ever want to fight those guys again. I feel very bad. You know, I mean, you just got to put them out of their misery, I guess, at some point. Because they're, you know, cursed by darkness to just decay <laughs> into nothingness over time. Um, it's, yeah, it's very fucked up. Like, all the, the the themes that have been, like, quietly building up in the background of stuff since a lot of Zhongli's character quest about like erosion and the like yes the kind of like curse of immortality in this world is like it gets more and more haunting every time they touch on that subject because uh, every time they go back to it it's more like jesus you really don't want to be immortal in the world of genshin impact because you know it's usually a like awful thing in fiction but this version of immortality where you just you know slowly decay and erode into nothingness over time because nothing can truly be immortal um, that is like a very haunting concept uh, that, you know, Genshin Impact, usually on the surface of it, seems like this very fun, happy anime game where you go and hang out with your buddies at like the light novel festival or whatever. Um, and you, <laughs> and, you know, get, you know, your like themed drink around the like, you know, please my, you know, Yuji Shrine Maiden or whatever that, that thing was. Um, you know, you think it's just that happy go lucky stuff. Uh, but really, it's no, it's just like horrifying <laughs> fantasy world with all this awful shit <laughs> that's been happening in the way that like history consumes us all. Uh, and every time Dainsley shows up, it really makes you think about all that shit. I, you know, I did. It, it was funny. I got to that this morning with the Healy Trails, but I'm like, I just finished playing Elden Ring and doing all this fucking crazy Miyazaki immortality shit. Get this out of my Genshin Impact. No, I, I love that it's in my Genshin yeah. Impact because it's great. But it, it was it was unexpected, I, sh I will say. Um and very fun. So anyway, Genshin Impact is fun. We talk about it a lot. Uh, did we want to mention really quickly that they did announce this week that the next version is delayed? The first delay that they've had to do over the course of the game? For very good reason. Shanghai yes. is in uh, shambles at the moment because of COVID. So completely understandable. And I first and foremost hope everyone is okay working at MiHoYo and, and everyone's fine. Um, and obviously they put out so much content that if you're mad about a delay, you're a piece of shit. But yeah, it is uh, interesting because this game has been clockwork for, I was going to say for so long, since it launched, it's been clockwork. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, this is a thing that I think the community had basically known was going to happen for a while because, as you said, it, it, that while they didn't officially like say it this way, it is very obvious that it is because of the, the like very stringent lockdown and everything that's happening uh, in Shanghai, which is where the developers are primarily primarily based out of. Um, we know that a lot of Mihoyo's staff have, like, they are, like, working from home and stuff like that, where they hadn't been doing that. Um, and so, yeah, so very, like, understandable reasons. I mean, this has, like, been affecting the game for a while anyways, because stuff like the Serenity Pot has been in, like, a state of maintenance for um, almost this entire update, where you can't actually, like, place new items in the Serenity Pot right now. Um, you can still get, like, all the, like store stuff and you can get like the sort of in-game currency that accrues through it and all of that but you can't actually modify it currently it's been like that for several weeks and that has like again clearly just been because of like the stress on development that the shanghai stuff has 
um, cause that has just made it probably like a very low priority thing for them to fix. And they're giving you like free goodies basically every week that that continues. Um, so yeah, so this is the first time that a version update will not come out six weeks after the previous previous version update. I mean, Genshin Impact has been the most consistently updated game, maybe just like ever. I, like I like certainly that I've ever played, but like I would imagine it's in the conference. I mean, it's would it it has never been an update other than six weeks. So it has been kind of like perfectly clockwork in that regard making it so that for the past like year and a half i basically have measured time relative to what was the genshin impact update like when i think about it thing it's like <laughs> when did that game come out was that like 1.7 it's <laughs> like it's so it's so perfect you could just create an entire gallon calendar themed around um the genshin impact update time um but yes if they they should take the time they need to delay the game or delay the update um, do what they need to do like it is you know I feel like the, they have built up such a tremendous well of goodwill amongst the community that the only things I have ever seen is people being extremely understanding of the delay and that's like shocking for me I'm yes. sure that there are you know there's like tens of millions of people playing this game I'm sure that there are pockets out there of assholes um, but in general the stuff I have seen has been like really understanding of this i'm like man that's crazy because usually when a delay happens in any context in any way shape or form in the video game world all you see is just like the internet burning down on fire with people just like you know frothing at the mouth of like oh you lazy developers and blah 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 blah, blah. um and this has been mostly people saying like hey be safe we understand you know i'm excited for the update whenever it can come um and that's like it's it's rare to see a community have a certain positive reaction to something like this because also, like, man, if if you have if you literally have nothing else to play, and you are not insanely caught up, there's still a ton to go do in the game, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, you could you could be leveling your characters like me. You could f be finishing up this massive chasm area they launched at the same time they did the Inazuma Festival, which means it was hard to do all of it at, at once. You know, so you could go do all of that. I've still got a couple of character stories to clean up. You know. It's yeah. it's fine. I've got I got a couple a of uh, date events that I haven't done. I haven't done like Chung Yun's, and I think there's one other one I haven't done that you know now I'll have time to to go in and do that. Yeah, it's just like yeah. even me, even me. I, I know I haven't done everything there's to do in Genshin Impact yet, and I play that game every day, and I have for a year and a half at this point. You're you're a nut job. Yes. No, it's all good. Uh, all right. Well, that's Genshin Impact. That's Horizon Forbidden West. I've remembered the name of the Horizon sequel. Wow, that's yes. amazing. Now that anyway. I'm actually playing the game, it is easy for me to remember this, the, the title at this point. That's good. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and talk about something just as good as those things. Let's talk about Gundam Build Divers. Yay. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here to dive, dive, dive into the world of Mobile Suit Gundam. Once again, this week on the show, we are talking about Gundam Build Divers, the show, the most recent show that finished airing before the start of our Weekly Suit Gundam project. This finished airing about five months before we started doing this podcast. So this is actually the first time I have watched the show to its completion, and it's not good. What? You didn't like it? It's this. I'm kidding. This, this is a terrible is a, show. It, <laughs> this show is a tragedy of animation. This show is a disaster. Uh, I, this might be <laughs> the worst thing we've talked about 
This is like G Savior is no longer a guaranteed spot at the end at the bottom of the list is what I'll say after having finished Gundam Build Divers. Wow, you're prepared to go slightly further than I was. I was going to say this is the worst Gundam animation. This is the worst Gundam show. I I man, okay, G Savior I guess is only 90 minutes. So if you're saying would you rather watch all of Build Divers versus all of G Savior, I guess it would be G Savior. But if you said 90 minutes of Build Divers versus 90 minutes of G-Savior. I would still probably go 90 minutes of Build Divers because at least the robots look cool. Uh, but Man Alive, no, Gundam Build Divers is a terrible show. This is a... I, I definitely, I will say, put my cards on the table, this is worse than Gundam Seed Destiny. Gundam, yes. Seed, Gundam Seed Destiny has good things in it. I, like, Sheen Asuka is a wasted character by the end, but I like the character. I think there's, like, mm -hmm. stuff in there that makes him a compelling protagonist. There is a solid, like, core in the middle of that show. By core, I mean, like, a 12-episode run of anime, but also the core of Sheen. But there's, like, a core near the middle of that show where they just focus on Sheen Asuka. It's pretty good. We talked about it on that episode. Yep. Um, and there's, you know, it's got some individual good episodes. It's got good music. You know, it's got lots of good things in it. Um, it's also got lots of frustrating and infuriating things. But one thing you can never say about Gundam Seed Destiny is that it's boring, uh, and Gundam Build Divers is the most vapid, empty, hollow shell of a show I think I've ever seen. It really does feel like a show that they had to just start making with no planning whatsoever because it is such a mess, and it's a mess in a way where like there are ba it's it's there are characters, there are people on screen who have been designed by a character designer who are voiced by professional voice actors and have names. But I don't know if they're really characters. They're just kind of there. They just kind of lay there. The action sequences lay there. The plot, there is kind of one in the first half. Then it's like 10 episodes of filler. Then there's a plot at the end that is horrifying. And then it ends. It is It is just a nothing of a show. And then at the end it gets even worse than a nothing of a show. Oh my god. Yeah, and I think for me, what really puts it over the edge of something like Sea Destiny is it is the like one two punch combo of like probably about two thirds of the show being, or maybe be probably like more three fourths of the show being like utterly nothing episodes that are that are not dramatic and also are not comedic. They're just kind of nothing. Like there's very rarely any attempts at like actual humor in the show in the terms of like they don't there aren't jokes. Um, almost ever. There's like maybe five jokes they actually tell over the course of the entire fucking show. So it's not a humorous show. It's also not frequently a dramatic show. So most of their show's episodes are just kind of nothing and they are incredibly boring, just intensely dull episodes. But then there's this other mode that the show has, which is like the needlessly, overly self-serious, excessively melodramatic um storylines that there's like one in the middle that is probably like the highlight of the show but it's still not good and then the one at the end that is one of the most bizarre and inexplicable plots i think i have ever seen a show try to shove down your fucking throat um that is the thing that pushes it over the edge from just being like this is a like incredibly dull boring show to this is a show that like by the end of it i was actively resentful resentful of in a way similar to I am resentful of Sea Destiny because of how like actively bad it is, but then there's no part of the show earlier that was good that you can fall back on to say, well, at least it did that 
piece well, which is almost what generated the resentment. The resentment comes from the fact that so much of it was so boring and so nothing, and then they're trying to give you this awful shitty plot on top of it at the end, and that is the thing that really pushes it to be worse than Sea Destiny to me. I think I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. This one, you are not resenting Gundam Build Divers because there was at any point any potential in it, right? Yeah, no. And if you are resentful of Sea Destiny, I think it's almost certainly because there's very clear potential in Gundam Sea Destiny, right? Yes. Um, uh-huh. All over the place. There's in part because it's a sequel to a good show. Um, this is and Build Divers kind of is a sequel to two good shows: a, a great show in Gundam Build Fighters and a pretty good show in Gundam Build Fighters Try. Um, and this is kind of in that lineage, although bafflingly d- does not make any use of that continuity. And maybe for the better, because you don't have to connect them in your head, which is nice. But yeah, if if you are listening to this podcast. And you have not yet seen Gundam Build Divers. And maybe you're not going to stick around when we get into spoilers and stuff. Sean, can you think of any possible reason other than just stubborn completionism or having a Gundam podcast for anyone to watch this television show? No. I mean, really, like, I would not have watched this show. And I I didn't watch this show, right? So, like, part of the thing with this show is... Um, that I started watching it when we started doing Weekly Suit Gundam. Like, I remember it was specifically once I realized, Jonathan, that you got hooked, like, really hard immediately, that you just, like, really loved Mobile Suit Gundam right off the bat in a way I was, like, not expecting you to be, like, so, like, enthused by it, that the thought occurred to me that it was possible that this broadcast project would extend beyond the bounds of the original show. Um, And so I thought, well, in order to maintain the premise of the series... I should watch Gundam Build Divers now, you know, circa 20, like summer 2019, um, in order to then be able to rewatch it in the hypothetical way. I probably in my head would have been like five to eight years or something in the future, <laughs> which would have been a reasonable pace to have gone through the rest of the Gundam franchise. Not three fucking years, which is insane. Um, but like to to rewatch it um, at that point to, to maintain the whole core concept of the show. So while I was rewatching Mobile Suit Gundam, for our original Weekly Suit Gundam episodes, I started watching this show. And I think I made it about four or five episodes. I honestly couldn't remember at what point it had shifted to episodes I had not seen before because they were so indistinct that it was could not possibly have remained in my memory for three years. Um, but the reason why I fell off is because it was so boring and my like spider senses tingled of, don't watch this show, this show is bad. I mean, particularly in 2018, where, you know, we're still in a massive glut of different various, like, isekai kind of, like, video game shows. Um, but particularly in 2018 when this came out, I mean, this is an extremely cynical cash grab, which I'll talk about all the context of where it comes from from a genre perspective. Uh, but particularly 2018, uh, it was just, like, dire trying to watch a show like this when there was a lot of other stuff like it coming out um, in the same season it was released in. Um, and so I had just drop this show like a fucking sack of bricks and prayed secretly inside that we would never come around to it because it's like because i knew the show is not going to be good i tried not to like express it very like strongly on the podcast when we were leading up to gun to build divers other than saying like ah, i did get the sense that the show is very good but i was kind of dreading getting here in some ways because i knew that like man if the show didn't turn itself around at like the midpoint that this is like a real fucking stinker and not only does it not turn itself around, like, the second half of the show is markedly way worse than the first half of the show. Yes. Which is kind of fucking insane. Um, 
And so, yes, I would not watch the show if I were the person listening. You might want to listen to this podcast to get the, like, you know, ancillary experience of having watched it if you haven't watched it yet. Um, so you can know what the show is about. Um, but you don't need to go out and watch it yourself. Because, again, if we were not doing this podcast, even I would not have watched this. I would have been able to easily segment this out as it's not a real Gundam show because it's part of the weird build sub-franchise. So it's not like... I have to watch it to say I've watched all the mainline Gundam stuff. <laughs> and that's like the completionist thing I would kind of more care about. Um, and so I, it's easy for me to sort of put this off in its own little box and say, yeah, it's, you don't need to watch it. Um, and, if, and just ignore it. I think that is the right example. I, I, I think there are, I said this on Twitter, I think there are exactly two kinds of people in the world who should, should maybe watch Gundam Build Divers. One is very small children whose parents don't spend enough time with them and have run out of other things to watch, which I don't know if you really can run out of other things to watch. There's like 50 years of Sesame Street. Any of that uh -huh. is better than Gundam Build Divers. Um, but maybe that person would be okay with it, uh, that very small hypothetical child. Or idiots with Gundam podcasts who do all the Gundam shows. And that happens to be us. Sadly, Sean, this is the life we've chosen. And so we had to watch the whole thing. You do not have to. I absolutely recommend listening to our podcast because we're going to recap this sucker for you. And you're going to be like, what the fuck happened on this show? And uh, it's going to be funny. We suffered. You don't have to. Uh, skip Gundam Build Divers. It's a steaming pile of shit. There are so many good Gundam shows to watch, let alone anime. Um, you do not need to watch Gundam Build Divers. No, you do not. So, you want to give us the history, Sean? Yeah, where does get in the history of of how 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 did this happen? Is was a question I had after watching. Who let this happen? I um, assume it involves a monkey's paw, or maybe a witch, or something like that. But tell us the actual truth, Sean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the real truth is that there isn't much of like an interesting story about its like production, how it comes about. I mean, it's just it's purely. The build is like sort of sub-genre, sub-franchise, right? With build fighters, build fighters try. I mean, this starts shortly after the, like all the OVAs and the GMs counterattack, right? Remember that we kind of, for our podcast, we took some of that stuff slightly out of order just to keep it all contained because it would have been weird to do like iron, like all the build fighter stuff and then do iron-blooded orphans and then do after that, like GMs counterattack would have been an awkward podcast order. So remember that this is coming out shortly after GMs counterattack. Um, so there's not really much of a gap of like build stuff from the anime side of Gundam. Um, yeah, GM's counterattack is August 2017, and this is 2018. Yeah. So yeah, very close. Yeah, so so that's a pretty sort of like consistent production uh, pace for this uh, stuff. And so you know, there's the thing to keep in mind is that this subgenre or sub franchise within Gundam is very successful, particularly from the perspective of selling gunpla. And that proves true even for Build Divers. I mean, Build Divers, we're not like on an island hating this show. I mean, this show is, is broadly despised amongst the Gundam fan base. It's incredibly poorly reviewed, both in the Western uh, fan base and in the Japanese fan base. Um, it had amongst like the worst home video sales of like DVDs and Blu-rays of any Gundam show in Japan. Like it, like on that element, it is truly dire. But even Gundam Build Divers can sell Gunpla because the whole concept is just doing cool remixes of existing uh, mobile suits, um, which is a good strategy from Bandai Namco's perspective making the the toys because 
you are able to um, reuse large amounts of your sort of manufacturing process to make the individual pieces. Because if you say, take the Gundam 00 Sky, which is primarily a sort of mix of the Destiny Gundam and the 00 Gundam, you, you are literally reusing parts in the manufacturing process to make the 00 Gundam stuff and the Destiny Gundam stuff. So they're cheaper to produce than doing whole brand new designs for a new show. Um, and they sell really well, and they and they are sold to people like that don't even necessarily have to watch the show because if you like the Double O Gundam or you like the age designs or you like whatever, and there's a cool remix of it in the show, you might buy those Gunpla. So I mean, I can speak to this. Reasons. I can speak mm -hmm. to this already. I have the Gundam Tri Age Magnum, which is uh, Kyoya's suit from I think Rerise, which I obviously haven't seen uh -huh. yet. That's one of my, honestly, favorite Gundam builds I've done. It's a really cool Gunpla. I think that's a great suit. And I've also bought one other suit. I bought the one that, um, I'm not going to remember any character names in this show because there's no characters in this show, but Ninja Lady, her SD Gundam. IMA. IMA. I thought her SD Gundam was really cool. I just got that in. I haven't finished it yet. It is a very cool build. It's actually a surprisingly intricate SD Gundam. So I already own two from this series that I fucking hate um, because, hey, Gunpla are still fun. Yeah, and so that's why, like, you know, this franchise has been very, like, enduring within uh, the Gundam stuff is because even if you have a stinker like this, it's not going to necessarily sink the whole project because it's still going to sell your Gunpla. Um, and so basically the staff that they got together for this um, was um, more, much more of a shakeup than there was between Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try, but there is still a continuity here wherein the director of this show is uh, Shinya Watada, who was the director of Gundam Build Fighters Try. He also did, like, directed some individual episodes of the original show. Um, but there's a lot of other major figures are changed up. So obviously, you know, the character designer is different. Like, that's obvious just by looking at the show. Um, the music is composed by someone else, um, which, like, the music in this is not, it's not the most tragic part of it, but I think this is one of the weakest scores of any Gundam show. Also, especially if you compare it to Build Fighters or Build Fighters Try, which is Yuki Hayashi, the, like, My Hero Academia and uh, Haikyuu guy. Um, the, those, the Build Fighters soundtrack is one of the best in the franchise. So they got uh, Hideo Akira uh, Kimura to do the music, like, a, a significant step down there. Um, and then the main writer, or what is called the series composition role um, for the series, is someone named uh, Noboru Kimura, um, who has done some stuff that I've seen that like I think is fine. Um, there's a like early 2010s series called uh, like Nyarko-san, the chaos that crawl like the crawling chaos or something like the chaos that crawls up to you with a smile. It's like a weird take on like a very goofy version of like Lovecraftian horror. Um, uh, that's like a decent show, but like everything I've seen that he's done that I thought like, oh, that's okay, was an adaptation of the manga, basically. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that this dude has done the series composition for in terms of original series that have not been received particularly well. Um, and so he's the main writer for Gundam Build Divers. And very, very notably, the only major shift in staff for the sequel show, Rerise, which we haven't watched yet, but like everybody says is better. Like this is something I had heard forever after Rerise came out that it was a significant step up over the first one. The writer for the sequel series is Yasuyuki Muto, who's the guy who's the main writer from Unicorn Gundam and from uh, the Hathaway movie, just in terms of his Gundam credits, which is obviously like, it, that, that feels like to me, that like looking at sort of the history of these two shows 
and kind of the experience of watching Gundam Build Divers, it feels like there was like significant behind the scenes something going on with this writer because Build Divers legitimately feels like it is two completely different shows mushed together that has no sense of like consistency of tone or vision that it feels like there is like a very bland Build Fighters Tri-esque show in here and then there's like somebody's like attempt at a like bad dramatic Sword Art Online ripoff and those two things don't fit together in any way and they like consume each other. Um, and that were I to guess, I, I would, it feels like there's like some sort of creative miscommunication or something between the director, Wadada, and Kimura, just based on watching the show. Yeah, I think that is a, that is a fair guess. And yeah, and you're not kidding about Re-Rise. I, since we started this podcast, to a person, every single time Re-Rise has ever been brought up from a listener, it has been in the context of, hey, Build Divers is bad, you're going to have to suffer through it, but Re-Rise is great, be excited for that one. So... You know, I, I will say my expectations are still low after watching this, but I have, I mean, literally, I have never heard anyone say anything other than Re-Rise is a giant step up, which, to be fair, it couldn't really be a step down, so that makes sense. But yes, I am, when I saw you tweeted at me like that, hey, they <laughs> this Re-Rise is the writer from Unicorn and Hathaway, I'm like, oh, thank God, that's that guy can write a show, that's good. Yeah. I mean, my hope is that it is at least as good as Build Fighters Try. I don't even like Build Fighters Try, but like, if it's at least that's like a watchable show, you know, like that. That Build Fighters Try is like a flawed thing. Um, Build Divers, I don't even know if I would go so far as to say it's flawed because saying it's flawed implies that there are parts of it that aren't flawed. <laughs> like, right. Implies that there are things about it that are good. Um, because no, Build this Fighters show, Tri- this show, I think yeah. makes you appreciate like. Build Fighters Try has a bunch of the fundamentals in place that you usually don't question in a show. Like, it has characters. The characters have motivations. There are clear stakes to the plot because there's a tournament they want to win. Like, stuff like that. You know, there's jokes. There's setups and punchlines. There's real music. There's all sorts of things that are good about Build Fighters Try that, like, maybe are easy to take for granted until you see Gundam Build Divers and go, oh, we had it. We had it real good in in the days of Build Fighters Try, didn't we? Yeah, because again, I mean, Build Fighters Try was basically made by everybody from the first show except for the director because he was making both the My Hero Academia TV show and the movie at the same time. So he was like, I can't do I can't do that and another TV show on top of it. I would literally die. Um, so, yeah, so that that's sort of the production staff. And again, there's like I looked around to see if there were like interviews about the creation of this show, but I think it's just like so nobody cares about it to the point where there's like I couldn't find anything of anyone actually talking about the production other than some interviews with the like voice actors, which is very ubiquitous. Like that's going to happen. Um, so I haven't had any like I don't have a source of anyone talking directly about what the influences are or the inspirations or why they decided to go the like game isekai route. But I don't need someone from the production to tell me because having watched the show and having watched most of its like major influences, this is where we have to talk about. We have to have the isekai talk. Um, and I'm going to try to make this as sort of like focused and specific because isekai is a very broad genre and Gundam Build Divers is like part of a very specific subgenre of the larger world of isekai. So I'm going to try to not have this be like a three hour discussion on, on all the intricacies of what this weird genre is. Um, but, but it is really important to understanding why Gundam Build Divers is ever made. Why did they decide to do this thing that is incredibly counterintuitive, which is... 
it's a franchise that is about building physical toys and making the toys fight. What if we, instead of having the physical toys, went into a virtual reality? It's like, why would they make this weird sidestep that obviously doesn't really fit the core conceit of the build sub-franchise? Um, and it's because of what uh, Isekai is and how popular it still is, but especially was in 2018. So... Isekai is a Japanese word that means basically other world. Sekai means world. E is like a prefix basically with a kanji that means other. Um, and it's a genre that's core premise that would connect all the different like subgenres you have because there's like a dozen different subgenres. Is at its core in Isekai is about a character or group of characters from the contemporary setting of when the story was made. So if it was made in 2010 Japan, it's going to be about people basically from 2010 Japan. If it's made you know, late 19th century England, it'll like Alice in Wonderland, it stars Alice, who is a normal girl from late 19th century England, right? Um, so it's a normal person from the contemporary setting of when the story is made. And then through some device or some thing, they are transported into a fantastical setting, wherein most of the plot and the adventures or whatever it is they go off on take place. In traditional English fantasy, like sort of literature discourse, this is has typically been called a portal fantasy. So that's like what Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, Chronicles of Narnia, um, those kinds of things. Sort of Harry Potter is kind of adjacent to this. That's where traditionally we call it portal fantasy. Um, but you could easily call that isekai and like it's the same basic concept of genre. Isekai is just the Japanese term for it. Yeah, I, I, was, I was having to explain this in my... Actually, my dissertation prospectus here at the University of Iowa, because I was mentioning isekai shows, and then I'm like, how do I explain this to people who don't know what isekai is? And I'm like, uh, it's like Chronicles of Narnia, was basically yeah. like, that's a really easy one to say, like, they go through the wardrobe, and then they're in Narnia, and that's that's the genre. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a common misconception that people have, and this comes up with Build Divers, is that it is, like, necessary for the genre that people are, like, trapped in the fantasy world they, world they go to, but that is not the case. Like, there are lots of examples um, like Build Divers, where it is them going back and forth between the real world and the fantasy world. Um, and so then in terms of isekai stuff, specifically with Japan, like isekai has been a genre around for a long time in Japan. Like there are some uh, like folk tales like the tale of Urashi Mataro that are reminiscent of isekai kind of stuff. Like there are lots of old stories from Japan that have this, as there are in like lots of different cultures. It's not like a uniquely Japanese thing in its core conceit. And there have been lots of anime forever that have isekai stuff. Um, you know, like Aurora Battler Dunbine by Tomino is one of these. Escaflone is one of these. Um, Inuyasha is probably one of the most famous anime that is an isekai. Well before anybody used the term. Because even the, the that specific genre term is also like only about 15 years old or so in Japan. Um, like that specific terminology is relatively new. But the basic genre concepts have existed for a long time. What's really relevant to Gundam Build Divers, however, is what happens in the early 2000s with this genre, and that's when a thing called Sword Art Online is published as an independently distributed web novel in 2002. Um, basically from 2002 to 2008, uh, the author Kawahara, I think his name is, uh, yeah, uh, Becky Kawahara, um, self-publishes this story um, called Sword Art Online, the basic premise of which is that the main character starts playing this new fancy virtual reality game called Sword Art Online on the day it's released. And on the day of its release, um, the creator of the game manifests in the virtual world and tells them, every all the players, that you cannot escape, you cannot log out. 
Um, that function has been removed. Um, and anybody in the real world who tries to forcefully remove your virtual headsets, well, you will be killed by your headset. And if you die in the game, of course, you will die in real life. And the only way to escape Sword Art Online is to beat it and to get to the top of the 100th floor of the tower of the main dungeon of the game and beat the last boss. And that's the only way for you to escape. And so the story is about Kirito, the main character, and his friends, like trying to figure out what the fuck is going on um, and spending, I think it's like two years or something past in the game world of them trying to escape and beat the dungeon. And that's the first arc of Sword Art Online. And that series then goes on to more be about Kirito and his friends being kind of tasked by this kind of government agency with different other weird cases or like weird things that are going on in other virtual um, simulations and stuff like that um, and, and Kirito is almost like a like uh, private eye or something in a, in a weird way um, and goes and, and investigates other stories in other uh, virtual realities and that section of it is much more similar to Gundam Build Divers in the sense of after the Sword Art Online arc of Sword Art Online it is much more about them going in and out of virtual worlds and that kind of stuff um, so that is a web novel series originally published in 2002 to 2008 um, and this is around the time that the broad isekai thing kind of happens is it's mostly in kind of fanfic fiction corners. It's mostly in like self-published like blogs online. Um, but then they start getting picked up by actual publishers. And that's what happens in 2009. Uh, uh, Sword Art Online is picked up by asking Media Works to be published as an actual like physical light novel. Light novel just basically being a like cheaply produced, like you can buy them for like five, the equivalent of five dollars. Um, kind of young adult fiction. Um, and then that is where Sword Art Online starts getting incredibly popular. There are currently 26 volumes of Sword Art Online. I think there's 30-something volumes if you include all of its different spin-offs. Um, Sword Art Online as a novel series has sold over 27 million copies worldwide, which puts it above things that people probably would have heard of, like His Dark Materials. It puts it above stuff like the uh, Isaac Asimov Foundation series of novels. So like Sword Art Online is like a legitimate mega hit in the world of literature. You know, not like Harry Potter numbers, but it is like a pretty titanic thing in sales in that regard. And then in 2012, it gets adapted or starts its adaptation into anime. Um, and then the anime is even more popular and has continually had different seasons and movies and stuff now, um, 10 years after its release. Like, that franchise is still um, going strong. And when Sword Art Online, the anime, comes out, that is really what creates this kind of gold rush scenario where there was all this material, all these different web novels, fanfics that got turned into, like, a very... There's a lot of Fifty Shades of Grey-esque scenarios of fanfics that get kind of, like the specifics edged off to get turned into technically original material and those start getting adapted into light novel series those light novel series start getting adapted into anime and there's just this massive glut of different like ips basically and different properties and material waiting to be adapted sword Art online sold so well and continues to sell so well and is one of the most popular shows anytime it comes up in a new season of anime um, that like it is this like seemingly infinite font. Ten years later, we are still getting new isekai shows all the time um, that are kind of chasing that dragon. And sometimes you get good ones like ReZero or Konosuba, which are good ones. Um, most of them are very kind of low effort, kind of fairly bad shows. Um, you know, I've, I'm hoping eventually we can kind of step outside of the specific isekai glut and get a different genre we can latch onto to just have every studio make 500 of, um, just for a, a change of pace. But within that isekai thing, most shows aren't actually that much like Sword Art Online. Because most isekai are what you would call a resurrection or tensei isekai, 
um, which is its kind of own genre with its own set of like sort of different tropes that it goes after. Sword Art Online is what people generally call a game isekai, which is the core conceit is that whole thing about the contemporary characters, usually set in now a near future setting that is basically just modern day setting, just with like virtual reality headsets are popular, which is a fantasy in and of itself. Um, but that's like the big conceit you have to accept <laughs> for these. Um, and so in a world where VR headsets are popular, the characters use VR headsets to travel to the fantastical setting, which in those instances is a constructed virtual world. Um, and while the most isekai stuff isn't specifically like that, there are a series of other sh series like shows and, and novel series and stuff like that that are similar to Sword Art Online. And a lot of them you can see the echoes of in Gundam Build Divers, which kind of picks and chooses a lot of specific influences um, from stuff like Log Horizon, which Log Horizon is basically Sword Art Online, only with like all the kind of like edginess of it sanded off. Um, and it's more, it's, it's Log Horizon is less concerned with how do we escape the VR world we've been trapped in and more like, what do we do now that we're in here because there's no seeming way to escape. And it's a much more lighthearted series that's not concerned with like the existential dread of being trapped in a virtual world, but instead is like, hey, it's, we're in a crazy like RPG world where we can make the world whatever we want it to be. Um, and some of that lighter tone um, that Build Divers has is very similar to Log Horizon. Also, Koichi in IMA, those characters from Build Divers are very reminiscent of the main two characters from Log Horizon in terms of design and some characterization. Um, there's a series Overlord, which is about the main character um, who's the last person left in his guild um, at the end of that game's lifespan and all of his other guild members have left. This is very similar to IMA's uh, backstory, feels very similar to what Overlord is. Um, and, and that guy gets trapped in his video game world. Basically, he's he falls asleep in it on the day the game is set to shut down and he gets trapped, which I always thought is a good conceit for how he's stuck in the game world. Um, and then the other one that I really want to talk about, because I actually ended up re-watching this show. It has one season of anime, which came out after Build Divers, but its source material predates Build Divers. And I kind of watched it just to sort of like give me some like perspective and to maintain my sanity in the midst of Bill Divers to be like, these things can be good, right? Um, that's a show called Bofuri, um, which is a weird title that is a sort of like contraction of its long Japanese title, which basically translates as to something like, I don't want to get hurt, so I maxed out my defense. Bofuri is where I feel like log or uh, uh, Bill Divers gets a lot of its sort of weird slice of lifey stuff from, because the premise of that show is the main character... Um, whose character name in game is called Maple. She's this kind of like, kind of like airheaded girl um, who doesn't really think things through too much, and she just enjoys, starts playing this VR game because her friend recommends it to her, and she says, "Oh, I don't want to get hurt, so I'll max out my defense." And the series is basically about how she keeps on stumbling on weird in-game skills and items that totally break the balance of the game. Predominantly that she is effectively invincible because the only thing she puts her points into is vitality, which means that she <laughs> effectively becomes immortal because the game is not designed around that concept. And so it's a comedy series about her. There's no, like, nobody's trapped in the game. There's no you die in the game in real life. It's just a story about people playing this game, having a fun time, and most of the episodes are like, hey, we're making a guild. Hey, here's this weird contest. Here's this, like, guild war between different groups um, and contests, and there's a capture the flag thing, and all that kind of stuff that they do. And it's just about kids playing this game and getting in wacky hijinks, and a lot of it focused around the core conceit, which is that Maple continues to find extremely bizarre and sometimes, like, hilariously kind of grotesque weird abilities and things like that 
that allow her to totally break the game's balance and like fuck everything up. Um, and Beauforty is not, it's not a masterpiece or anything, so I don't want to recommend it in like a, it's going to change your life. But it's a very fun, good show. And if you watch Gundam Build Divers and you're curious about what does something that does a lot of these kind of plot ideas and some of this tone stuff and the humor, I, I say humor, I think Build Divers is trying to go for humor, but just to know what humor is. Um, but something that is actually a humorous show. If you want to see that done well, I would point you to Beauforty. And you will also see a lot of very, very similar episode conceits and stuff like that. Because overall, within this big, like, sort of pool of shows of the game Isekai stuff that Bill Divers pulls from, I think the main thing it does is that it pulls a lot of the daily life stuff from Beauforty is trying to kind of, imp like, you know, uh, imitate that show in some ways and doesn't know how to do it well. Um, and then all the, like, heavy dramatic stuff like the big break decal arc in the middle, and then the insane fucking Sarah shit at the end of the show. All of that feels like someone trying to do a sort art online-esque kind of sci-fi melodrama in a virtual reality, um, and that the, both of those plot lines are fairly reminiscent of major plots from the Sword Art Online series, particularly the Sarah character is very, very similar to a character named Yui, who is a, like, AI girl who is sort of, like, generated within the Sword Art Online, like, virtual reality kind of spontaneously, and becomes Kirito's sort of, like, surrogate daughter type character, um, and, and that's where Gundam Build Divers comes from. Those are what its main influences are, and it is a show that as someone who has watched its major influences, like watching Gun and Build Divers, it feels like this incredibly cynical project that is just like people who don't actually care about this genre, people who have seen, as far as playing or watching the show, feels like have never actually played an MMO. Because the thing you can tell from Sword Art Online and Buffy and all those others is that those are like people who, you know, their main hobby was like playing video games and shit and then self-published stories about it online and like cool stuff like that independently published. So all those series understand video games and the appeal and the mechanics of MMOs and all that kind of stuff and incorporate that organically if it's a good series into its story. Build Divers is made by people that don't get or care about any of that shit. It's about people that want to sell toys and know that Sword Art Online is super popular. So they just put a bunch of that shit together. And that is, in my opinion, how Gunna Build Divers fucking happen. All right. Well, let me give your voice a rest for a second, Sean, because you've been monologuing. And I know I, and I'm very grateful that you did, because that's a really good explanation and primer on all of this for anyone sort of unfamiliar. And I just want to say where my initial confusion and why this show threw me for such a fucking loop comes from uh -huh. is because, correct me if I'm wrong, Putting Bofuri and Sword Art Online in the same show is a stupid idea, right? Because they're it's completely insane. It, yes, it, they are like right? polar opposite within the genre. They are at like polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Because I I know not every isekai show is they have to be in the other world all the time. Persona Five does that. I mean, they literally call it the isekai in Persona Five, yes. right? You know, Chronicles yeah. of Narnia. They after the first book, they come back and forth and do all this stuff, right? So it's it, throughout whatever version of the genre you have i know that there's you're not always trapped in the game but usually there is at least some kind of forcing mechanism to make you go in the game right and that uh -huh. is even when sword on online is not its first arc there are like things with stakes that cause them to go into the game same yeah. as like to give a bad example ready player one like that is a popular one in the u.s that like you don't they're not forced to be in the game but there is in the plot of that book and movie a forcing mechanism that is like there are clear stakes for them being there that is the usual thing 
versus something like what you're describing, Bofuri, is a slice of life as, as a slice of life anime where people play a game and have fun with it, and it's yeah. a comedy, right? Gundam Build Divers. I assumed I had heard Gundam Isekai, and in my head for years now, Sean, I have assumed Gundam Build Divers was a show about a little boy who plays a Gundam game who gets tr- either trapped in that game or something happens where he has to play it because there's some kind of stakes. And it's not that at all. Its basic premise is slice-of-life anime about two kids playing an MMO, which I could not care less about unless there's something like humorous or like fun about it, which there is not. But then there are also these stretches where it tries to have some stakes, and either those stakes are completely artificial and I don't give a shit, like the break decal thing, because the worst that can happen is that there's fucking people cheating in a video game. I'm never going to give a shit about that as a plot in your fucking show. That's a terrible way to make me care about what's going on. Or it's the Sarah stuff at the end, which goes the complete opposite direction, and now half of your fun cast are murderers, and that's not being acknowledged. Like It's like... So it is such a whiplash, and for the most part, it's just a very bad version of your slice of life thing, where like the first couple episodes of this show are so horrible, because it is literally just them, the main two characters, Yuki and Riku, being tutorialized on this video game. It feels like a promotional anime for an actual Gundam game that you cannot go play because it's not an actual Gundam game. So it's tutorializing a game you cannot play, which is terrible. And then it is just for most of the anime, it is one-off episodes of them playing the game and doing random things. But the game makes no sense, which you hinted at earlier, because it does not feel like this was made by anyone who's ever played a video game. Um, it vacillates between being something that is believably a VR game and something that is The Matrix, which are two very different things. I think deserve stressing. The Matrix, where you are plugged in and have all the bodily experiences, is different from VR. And sometimes it's The Matrix and sometimes it's VR, and that can vacillate between scenes and between episodes. Um, And so for the most part, it's just about these characters playing a game, and the stakes are non-existent. It's just... What will we have fun doing in the game today? And it's like watching a really awful Let's Play of a game I don't care about. And it's really bad. And then sometimes they pretend there are stakes. And it's either completely artificial and bullshit, like the break decal thing, that I don't care about. But at least there's a funny evil Haro there, and I got some amusement out of that. Uh Or it's the Sarah thing, which becomes existentially terrifying in ways the show is absolutely not equipped to talk about. And boy, howdy, it it feels like this is a show that fundamentally misunderstands all aspects of the genre with which it is engaging, to say nothing of the fact that it shits all over the amazing premise of Gundam Build Fighters that is just ignored here, and it's the most tragic thing ever, because Gundam Build Fighters had a great premise. Yeah, I think one of the core things that's really frustrating about it is that it gets none of the benefit of the genre it's decided to move this sort of franchise into, and it loses all the cool stuff from Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try with them physically making it and, and getting all the building sequences and all that. It's like you've sacrificed all that, but you because you haven't built anything interesting out of GBN, the sort of VR game that they're in, and it's just like the most ill-defined, vague thing. They don't do any stuff with like um, skills or items, which are very common concepts in isekai shows to kind of build 
like plot stuff and like your fights and stuff around is characters getting specific in-game skills that give them specific abilities or finding specific items that give them specific abilities, which is basically just like the isekai version of like, you know, someone's stand in Judge's Bizarre Adventure or something like that, or like a technique in a Dragon Ball or something that it like has like positives and like negatives to it like the kaioken and you build a whole conceit of a fight around those ideas like that's one of the major commonalities a bunch of a lot of isekais is that they use those game mechanics as like narrative devices to build sequences around and there are almost no things in gun to build divers that even like attempt stuff like that characters get like a ill-defined like secret move that riku only gets in the last like eight episodes or something of the show um there's like one time where nanami in the race gets items and you see an item screen and she's unlocked like the beam spray gun that the gym has and stuff like that and it's the only time i think that ever comes up in the whole fucking thing that like you're meant to be getting some kind of in-game items and you're competing in these events to get things. And it's like, it only ever comes up when they've decided randomly a plot demands that they need money to buy a thing. So all of a sudden money exists in the game, even though it had never come up before for the previous like 13, 14 episodes. Like that's a consistent thing within GBN or within Gundam Build Divers. And it's one of the things that takes away, I think a core pleasure of the game isekai thing, which is if you're someone who likes video games, which we both do, there is something fun about seeing those video game-like elements integrated into a narrative in like really clever, interesting ways. And part of the thing that makes the series feels like it just is made by people who don't understand video games is that they never really attempted to do it. And they've sacrificed so much just to get the opportunity to try those things that they don't even try it. Yeah, I mean, there is a... There's a stretch in the in the middle of this show. So the the villain of part one of Gundam Build Divers, like the first core, is a character who is uh, me, basically. He is <laughs> resentful. He is me and you. He is resentful that GBN exists because it has inexplicably made the, you know, actual like Plavsky particle Gundam Build dual thing completely irrelevant and now no one does the this is the least believable thing about this entire world in in Gundam Build Divers is that someone made a video game and now we don't use the technology that brought plastic to life like that is insane to me um you are you're already putting too much stock in VR technology if you're making a show about it but if you're saying VR technology is going to like get rid of people making cool plastic models and making them come to life in front of their eyes you're really stretching the bounds of believability for me but anyway, that has happened in the world of this show. This character is someone who used to do the GP duel thing, as we saw in Gundam Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try, and he is mad about that. And in the middle of this, uh, Riku, the main character of this show, does a fight with him in GP duel and gets his suit destroyed. And then he works with Koichi, a character who also did stuff in GP duel to rebuild his suit. And in that, in that whole stretch, there's this scene with Koichi where Koichi says, in real models, your gun plot gets broken and you have to fix it each time. Every time it gets wrecked, you try new ideas and add things. That's how you build your own unique machine. We were able to strengthen our bond with our gunpla that way. I think that's why we got so into gunpla battle and devoted ourselves to gunpla building. To which Riku responds, by actually moving the gunpla I built, I was able to feel so much closer to the double O diver. And at that point, I start screaming at the television, why are you critiquing your own show? In this one dialogue exchange, you have explained why the premise of Gundam Build Divers is just prima facie terrible and should not have been done. And then they never pick it up again. It's just, hey, here's why the show you're watching is so boring. 
All right, well, let's go back to the boring shit. And it's just insane to me because it does completely remove what was so fun or one of the things that was so fun about Gundam Build Fighters and Try, which is that, A, the, like, stupid weird fantasy of having the Plavsky particle that brings plastic to life is ridiculous but also really a fun idea that you would bring mm -hmm. your gunpla to life and fight them. That's really cool. But it also was this forcing mechanism where every time there's a fight... Um, there is this small amount of stakes in that the gunpla are actually getting hurt and then the main character has to take their gunpla and go repair it and they add cool things and you get building sequences. The word build actually means something in that show. And all of that is just completely removed in Gundam Build Divers. And that alone is frustrating. But then they don't replace it with anything of substance at any point because GPN is the most ill-defined milk toast bland version of a video game that I've ever seen in any piece of fiction like this and so you got rid of the good stuff and replaced it with bad stuff it's a literal worst case scenario for this kind of thing yeah and I think a consistent issue with the show with a lot of that stuff is that is that there is no consistency with the way that people treat the game world and this is like a big pet peeve of mine with stuff like this when it's done poorly which is like is your like perspective that characters are going to react in like dramatic ways as if like in this fight as if they're going to die if they lose the fight and that's like how your dialogue is written like it's a normal fight in a normal show that's not a VR thing which is what Build Divers mostly does even though the consequence of losing a fight is you've got to like respawn the consequence of losing a fight in this game seems to be the same as if you lost a fight in fucking Call of Duty it's like oh no I got shot I got to respawn back at base um, but all the characters and the dialogue in those scenes are portrayed as though like, oh my God, if Riku loses this duel with the ogre guy, it's like he's going to die or like some horrible cost is going to happen. And it's like, well, nothing's going to happen because as I constantly screamed at the TV over the course of watching this show, particularly the second half, you're, you're playing a fucking video game, guys. Like you're playing a fucking video game. It's fine. Nothing's going to happen. It's a game. Like, there are no negative consequences for this. And this is the kind of thing that a good show like Beauforty, which is designed to not have consequences, right? In Sword Art Online, there are consequences because if you die, you die in real life and all that kind of shit. Um, in Beauforty, since there's none of that, there's a lot of really funny scenes where characters are in the, a fight. And there's one in, like, the last episode I love where a guy realizes he's definitely losing this fight in this, like, guild battle or whatever. And he's like... Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, fine, fine. You got me. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just gets taken out. And it's, it's such a, like, real gamer mood of when you're just, like, you realize you've lost. And you're just like, yeah, okay, fine. Fuck it. Yeah, no, I fucked up. Yeah, just kill me. Just kill me. Just kill me. Um, and it really captures that attitude. Um, and, and Build Divers just so doesn't get any of that shit. It just so feels like it doesn't understand. So it it's all the dialogue is written like it's this big dramatic thing. And, but all you're doing is playing a video game and it's just incredibly annoying every time that happens. I mean, this is like, this is the most fundamental thing about this show to me. I don't know what GBN is. And mm -hmm. I know some of this is just any isekai show is going to play up some of the gamic elements as more realistic because it's a TV show and all of that stuff. Yeah. But it there is no internal logic to anything that happens on this show. So it's exactly what you're saying, that in the fights, they're all acting like they're actual Gundam protagonists in the cockpit, but there's never any acknowledgement that they're not, except when sometimes there is. So there'll be stuff like they're training with Tiger Wolf, who's like, remember, this isn't your actual body. You can't get tired. And they're like, okay. And then they go to a fight 
where they act like they're getting tired. You have that come up over and over, but then there's an entire episode where they're doing a decathlon in GBN uh-huh. and having a race, and I'm screaming at the TV, what does having a race in GBN mean? You're holding forward on the joystick faster, like, and then they're acting like they're getting tired, but what does that mean? And in some fights, they're acting like they're getting hurt, but they're not. And sometimes they're feeling physical sensations from the game somehow, but then sometimes they aren't and they acknowledge that they aren't. In many scenes, they're sitting down and having drinks and or food in the game, and I don't know what that is or what that means, but they're doing it. There's just Mm. all this shit that, like, if it were Sword Art Online and they were stuck in the game and they died from it, that makes sense. If it's Bofuri and there's a punchline to all of those moments where it's like, Hey, calm down, Riku. It's your your Gundam, your Double O Sky just respawned over there. It's fine. That would be funny, but it's neither, and it's both, and it's maddening. It makes you feel like you're going insane watching this show. Yeah, I I want to talk about the comedy side of it because it is it is one of those things that is really strikingly bad about the show, and particularly compared to Build Fighters and Try. And again. I don't even like Try that much, you know? Like, I've, I'm not here to say that Try is an amazing show, but this is, like, to illustrate how bad Build Divers is, is that it, like, literally just doesn't understand how to do humor. Um, because, like... So so in, in Japanese comedy, you have the concept of manzai, or what is, like, the, the kind of duo structure of the bokeh skomi. Bokeh is, like, your setup funny guy. Skomi is your kind of straight person... Um, you know, so the bokeh sets up some like sort of weird, funny, silly scenario. Then the scummy identifies that it's silly and gives like a sharp one-liner to kind of like bring it back down to reality. Is a basic structure in a lot of Japanese comedy that you see in in uh, anime all the time. And Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try were great at that kind of shit. Um, in particular, you had you know our favorite character of these shows, which is Mr. Ral. Um, and in like Build Fighters, Mr. Ral is like the the you know consummate bokeh character, right? He is absolutely ridiculous. Every line he says is over the top. It is like he's saying this like super intense shit about like fighting and youth and what it is to be a, a fighter and all that kind of stuff. Like you know he's he's in a much more serious version of a show. But the thing about Build Fighters is it understands that he is a ridiculous character, that he is a bokeh, that the ridiculous things he says are setups for other characters to, like, to scummy them, to point them out and have, like, funny one-liners to kind of retort it. With, you know, my, just highlight an example, my favorite joke, which we talked about on the podcast for Build Fighters, which is uh, when Ral and Chena are in the car together and she asks him how old he is and he says he's 35 years old, which is patently ridiculous when you're looking at this like 60 year old man. And she just, her glasses fog over and she gets a blank look on her face and she just goes, huh? And it cuts. Um, and that's, that's it's scummy, right? That is like, this is this like funny little one moment that contrasts with the setup to give you this like sharp punchline and it's really funny. And Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try are doing that constantly because their show's built on a lot of humor, even if they also have lots of obviously very dramatic elements. At their core, they're extremely funny, humorous, lighthearted shows. And Build Divers has so much shit in it that feels like it's supposed to be a bokeh-style setup. You know, with probably the biggest one being the uh, that ogre character, Oni, who is just utterly fucking absurd. His whole thing is he's like, I gotta get a real fight. Like, come on, give me more, fight more. And the whole time, I'm like, you're playing a video game, dude. 
and it's like any sane show would cut to some like loser who's like half naked in his fucking house or whatever you know with like cheeto dust on his fucking clothes with his headset vr headset on like screaming give me more give me more because it's like (laughs) This is not a guy who's like this cool demon warrior out on the battlefields. This is a dude at home playing a fucking video game. It would be like if you're playing fucking Halo with someone and that's their attitude is like, I am a true warrior on the battlefield who only (laughs) seeks pleasure through through like the crossing of sword and steel with my noble foe. Um, It's just completely insane. But the show never, ever, ever ever even once undercuts any of that shit and it is a constant thing running across the whole show that that it almost feels like the show is like gaslighting you in a weird way where where you're like if like i feel like i'm questioning my fucking sanity looking at it being like this is supposed to be funny right like this is supposed to be a setup for a joke right and it's like a constant expectation i had until eventually it's clear it's like no no matter how silly or ridiculous even when it's the fucking evil purple horror with the red glowing eyes laughing maniacally that is played so completely seriously and nothing ever undercuts it or ever tries to make it explicitly funny and there's just no point over the course of the show you can interpret it as going for real humor um and then that is proved extremely true when the last story arc is about most of the characters you've met up to this point trying to murder a 13 year old girl and it's like this is all (laughs) completely straight-faced all very intense and very self-serious and that's part of what the show kind of collapses under is that it just it either doesn't understand how to do humor when it's trying to or it's just never trying to even though it is fundamentally a ridiculous premise that needs to be undercut with humor for you to accept any of the dramatic stakes you're trying to sort of vaguely float with this show i mean god on that point like the whole connection between The people in the world and the people in the game is so bizarre to me because most of the characters are just in their, their, their avatar in the game is just them with slight minor differences like Riku and Uh Yuki and, and even Ayame. It's just, and Ayame is just a costume change. Other than that, she's the same, right? Um, But then you do have a couple characters like Rommel is a weasel and Tiger Wolf is a Tiger Wolf and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's like, well, wait, why are some of these... And it's like, it's so inconsistent on who is going to be outsized and who isn't. And they never do any fun undercutting of that. Like with the Oni characters, the ogres and stuff like that. And then in the final episode, there's a scene where they all meet up with these characters. And the first character who arrives there is is Magi, who's like the gay stereotype character, right? Mm-hmm. And he is exactly the same as he is in the game. And I did chuckle at that, because if there's any one character where you're going to do the joke where, oh, they're exactly the same as they were in the game, that's the one who's kind of funny with it. But then with Tiger Wolf and with Kyoya and all these characters, and I say, and this is, sounds crazy because Tiger Wolf is a big wolf guy, but then they just make his character look like that, basically, yeah. without the fur. And with Kyoya, it's, it's, he's, he's brunette instead of blonde, and it's all this stuff, and they're all exactly who you expect them to be. So there is no difference, which also undercuts the minor 
tiny attempt at a theme about why GBN is important they do in the last arc, which is the idea that some people have like disabilities or something that makes GPN really important to them because they're able to go in there and and play with, you know, full range of motion and all of this stuff, which they never really explore. They just broadly gesture at it. They never actually give you... There's a character named Kurt who apparently has something, but they never tell you what that is. But then in the last scene, it's just, no, they are all just who they are, and there is no difference between them in the world and them in the game, and none of this is heightened role-playing. It's just, this is the world, I guess, but sometimes they look like a tiger wolf. I don't... Why are you telling a story in this milieu if you want to use literally none of the narrative opportunities offered by this milieu? It's insane. Yeah, especially because the, like, oh, their avatar looks nothing like them in real life is the classic joke in this genre. Like, it's yes. a pretty ubiquitous one um, that you can play. And, yes, it doesn't ever do it. And if and I feel like they chicken out by not having the Oni guy show up at the end. There's, like, a specific line. There's, like, oh, yes. they couldn't make it. And I was, like, that's because you couldn't figure out how to have that guy in real life and not have him be insane. Like, you just couldn't figure out how to possibly have him be a human being. <laughs> And it's like, that feels like you encountered a fundamental problem with writing that character way late in the show. If at that point you're like, oh, wait, fuck, right. This guy's just an anime character. He's not a person. So we can't have him be in the real world. It's like, yep, no, yep, that's what you did. And that character has been an annoying fucking thing in the show for the entire time. And Gundam Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try played with this all the time. And that's oh. not even a virtual reality show. That's sort of a like heightened Yu-Gi-Oh! verse where everyone is playing this one specific game. So it has that heightened element to it. But even then, like Meiji and Kawaguchi, it's funny that there is a guy in this world who's like, goal in life is to spread the love of Gunpla. That is played tongue-in-cheek, and it is funny. Like, they do that with all of those characters. There's no sense of that here. You know, I kept thinking of the fucking... There's a famous South Park episode that now is really old, where they're playing World of Warcraft. Remember uh -huh. that one? And yes. you will. And then there's the big villain that the kids are all trying to defeat. And then at the end of the episode, you cut, and the guy that they're trying to defeat, who's like the big edgelord bullshit guy, is a fat dude in his mom's basement, like, like playing with one hand on the mouse. And, like, that's the funny image in that episode. And it's like... This is so basic to this genre that it's in South Park and they can't get that in Build Divers. Yeah, it's, it's just one of the many things that completely sinks the show is that it is just completely incapable of constructing anything that is actually comedic, even though, again, like two-something thirds of its episodes are all, like, lighthearted, no-stakes, like, what I in my head I think of as anti-dramatic episodes. It's not that they're comedic; it's that they're just anti-dramatic. Um, yes. And if you're going for the super lighthearted tone for so much of your show, like you have to make it funny. You at, you at least have to try because if you don't, then you then it, they're just nothing episodes. It's just what they end up being. Yeah, I mean specifically in the second core, like you start with an episode where. They're doing an event to win a bunch of in-game coins. And it's like, oh goody, we're watching an episode about a bunch of kids playing an event to win in-game coins. And maybe you could make that funny, but they don't try. So it's just the most boring thing in the world. And then the follow-up episode to that is that they want to use those in-game coins to buy some in-game land. But oh no, someone else wants it too. So they're going to play a game with them to get the in-game land. Okay. It's like... 
you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! is a ridiculous series about a bunch of people playing a children's card game, but at least it has the good sense to have crazy people in the card game who want to kill you if you lose the card game. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, this is so basic to anything like this that the complete and utter lack of stakes with no awareness is just, it does feel like gaslighting at a certain point. 100%. So I think we, should, we need to talk about the characters such as they are because that yes. is obviously another significant issue. Characters um, with quotes on top of quotes on top of quotes and air quotes around the word characters. Yes. And and the biggest thing here is uh, the worst Gundam boy of them all. Um, he easily takes the prize for being the worst protagonist character <laughs> in a Gundam show. Yes. Um, which is Riku uh, Mikami, uh, who is... Who, whose only piece of characterization, I swear to God, is just he's the protagonist. Like, it, it's, I don't think I've ever seen something so blatant where they're just like, they didn't come up with anything for this character. So his only character traits are protagonist character tra traits, which means, like, he's very passionate about GBN and he likes his friends and he's got a good, he's got a heart of justice. And that's it. Like, that's his entire character. And he's like, and he's like generically good at Gundam stuff, I guess. In like a kind of a very nondescript way. He's proficient enough at it that it surprises other people. Like, that's it. And those are just like kind of mandatory character traits that the protagonist must have in a series like this. So I don't even really think of it as being characterization characterization, because it's just like it's it's fundamental necessary things that the character has to have to even exist in that functional role in the plot of the series so it's not real characterization it's just he's the protagonist any character you put in that slot would have that those exact same traits and they gave him nothing 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 on top of it and he is the most vacuous nothing character i have ever seen as a protagonist for a show like this yeah Absolutely. My joke that I kept making on Twitter while watching the show is that they forgot to write a main character, and they did. They A character designer drew him, a voice actor voiced him, they wrote dialogue for him, but at no point did they ever write a main character, because there is nothing distinguishing about this kid. We know nothing about his life, his parents, his school. Like not, We know nothing about him other than that he enjoys playing GBN, why he enjoys playing GBN is honestly kind of vague because he's uh -huh. not a Gundam fanboy. He knows nothing. They kind of tried to do the thing they did in Gundam Build Fighters Try of having the main boy not be into Gundam. But in Try, that's like a funny joke with your main character because he's actually like a martial artist and he likes Gundam for weird reasons. And that's like the humorous thing there. And then there are characters on the side of him who are super into Gundam, right? And... That's what they do there. And obviously in the original Gundam Mill Fighters, they had that with Sayori and then Ryuji, who is from another dimension and doesn't know what a Gundam is, right? Um, yeah. And with this, it's just... So he has no interest in Gundam. His, his, the vague explanation is that he saw Kyoya Kujo win the championship and he thought that was cool and he wanted to do it. But there's nothing else that would justify that. There's nothing like he was previously into martial arts, the way the main character in Gundam Build Fighters Try is pulled into it, right? There's none of that. And so it's just, he goes to the Gundam base in Odaiba, which I've been to. It is a very cool place. It would make you want to build Gunpla. I don't know if it would make you d d devote your life to it as single-mindedly as this character does. And uh, that's it. And that's his whole character. And the closest he ever comes to honestly feeling like a character 
is in the final couple of episodes because they have written a scenario where he is the only person with any moral clarity going, yeah. oh, you know, yeah, the, the, the little girl is more important than this video game. And he's the only person like vocalizing that. And so he does briefly become the best character on the show. But it's really a war of attrition to get there. But even then, he's still incredibly wishy-washy in that last arc because he's That's very true, yeah. like, I got to save Sarah, but also I care so much about GBN. And I think the thing that pissed me off the most is in the last episode, he fucking apologizes. Apologizes multiple times, and, yeah. And I'm like, no, they were trying to murder <laughs> that girl. Like, you know, like, don't apologize. Like, you should never associate with any of these people. You should call the fucking cops on them and leave, you know? Like, it's it's <laughs> it's really frustrating how he, he doesn't, like, because that's how uncharacterized he is, is, that he doesn't even really have, like, the mortal, moral fortitude of an actual protagonist that causes them to be, like, alienating to other characters. He has to be so generically likable to every other character in the show that even when they've constructed the most like unlikable plot scenario possible with this group of characters that still no bridges apparently have been burned by this which just like speaks to the kind of like flimsy nature of of Riku's characterization and i think the biggest issue with him as a character is kind of like some of the stuff you're talking about of like that his love of GBN and his relationship to GBN is just sort of generic and abstract and is is incredibly non-specific is the problem and I think it pops up like immediately in episode one that a thing, especially because this was an episode I obviously remembered having watched the first time because it's the first episode and having rewatched it, like it gave me perspective on like a thing that I could put my finger on that I didn't quite notice the first time I watched the show, which is I think the biggest thing out of the starting gate is that he's not given a plot where he falls in love with GBN. He's already in love with it. Like, he's already invested in the idea of playing in GBN. He already wants to play it. He's already excited to play it. And the only reason he hasn't played it is basically nothing. There's, like, one line of dialogue that says, oh, now that I'm 14 or whatever it is, now my parents will let me play GBN. But that's it. And it's just delivered as, like, a vague piece of exposition. And it's a big problem because, like... The, like that moment where the main character plays the game that they're meant to fall in love with that is like the whole thing of the show should be this really big impactful moment right like it should be this thing that if he's gone from not knowing what GBN is or not playing it to now playing it that should feel like a significant transition for that character rather than it feeling like nothing which is what it is in the show like there's this like fake expositionary barrier put up as to why he's never played it and then he plays it but he's but the experience of playing the game doesn't change anything for him because he already wanted to play it so bad um and it was the thing that made me feel when i was watching the show uh, like the thought i had was that like they one they either needed to do something like a reiji or sekai character arc from build fighters or try where he just doesn't know anything about it and then falls in love with it or he's a character who should have just already been in GBN at the beginning of the show. And that should have just been the starting point. If this is what they were going to do, have him start already playing GBN and then take the focus of the first episode off of being, it's not about him starting to play GBN. Instead, it should be about him falling in love with it through like the introduction of Sarah or whatever, like something like that. Um, and the thing that like was really frustrating is that later they introduced the character Koichi 
whose backstory was kind of the thing that in my head I was thinking of, oh, this would be an interesting thing for this character, someone who's kind of into it, but has maybe fallen out of love with Gundam stuff and then kind of rediscovers his love would be a good different take for a protagonist for a show like this, considering this is the third time we've done this build thing. Um, and and that was what maybe gave me the revelation that this is a lot like Build Fighters Try and that they kind of picked the wrong character to be the protagonist, or 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 they gave the characterization to the wrong character, right? In Build Fighters Try, Yuma is the character that has by far the most shit going on. He has, like, the most backstory. He's got the most rival characters in the show that are set up for the longest, but he's the least emphasized of the three main characters in that show. Um, and in this, it's like... Either IMA or Koichi both would be much better characters to actually be the protagonist of the show than Riku. Riku is like the worst character to pick to be the protagonist. Um, and it is really frustrating when you see that happen again, where you're looking at this character thinking, there's nothing to this guy. And then they later introduce a couple of characters that both have much more interesting protagonist-esque arcs to go on and more interesting backstories and more interesting stories to tell about them. But they are side characters who are basically spent in a couple of episodes and then are like mostly just in the background for the rest of the show. Yeah, Koichi and Ayame, I guess, would count as the two best characters in the show because they're the only two who have some, you know, crumbs of characterization. I don't think they're good characters. I don't think anyone in the show is a good character, but they're the closest. But then they are also by far the most ignored in the second half of the show. They are the most backgrounded. And mostly it is... You know, it is um, Yuki... Oh God, I'm already forgetting all the characters' fucking names. You've got Yuki, you've got Riku, you've got the the girl who plays soccer. Momo. Momo. You've got Sarah, and then you've got Nami, who they keep on the sidelines forever until the last couple episodes kind of comes in. And they're sort of more at the focus, but they don't yeah. do anything. And, and Yuki is also a terrible character. They couldn't even give fucking... Riku with like a fun best friend. It's just a milk toast nothing best friend. It's the kind of character I feel like Millhouse is making fun of on The Simpsons. It's just <laughs> terrible. Um, yeah, so all the characters suck. And then even all the big larger than life characters who in Gundam Build Fighters are the most fun are the most shallow, pale imitations of them, like Tiger Wolf and Rommel and uh, the, the fucking Shafri and... and all of these guys and and our version of Majin Kawaguchi in this game who is just the saddest nothing uh -huh. imitation of that character type they just all suck they're all so generic there's an episode near the end where they try to this is one of the most baffling ones to me where Tiger Wolf wants to have a big final battle with Riku and the whole thing is that he taught Riku how to fight so now this is like the the thing in you know where you're going to pay back you know to your master like what you, you're going to repay the kindness by beating them and I'm like he did nothing of that. They had like yeah. one interaction where Tiger Wolf is inexplicably standing under a waterfall and I have no idea what that means or benefits you in a VR game. Yeah, Makes absolutely point. no sense to me. Um, so I'm just distracted by that. And now they're going to have this fight, but it's just a fight out of the blue. It's not a tournament arc where like Riku is fighting up the ranks in order to fight Tiger Wolf. It's not, you know, Goku fighting Jackie Chun or something like that. It's just a random out of the blue thing that was not built up to in any way because none of these characters are characters and none of these relationships are really relationships. And it's just so fucking hollow. Yeah, I mean, there's never any like friction meaningfully between characters other than when the plot suddenly demands it. 
um, which is a big issue with all of, like the character interactions is that there's nothing like like Riku and Yuki don't really overcome anything with the Tiger Wolf arc, right? Like Tiger Wolf is just there's an episode. I think it's like episode three or four. And they do that, and then and then after that, Tiger Wolf is just like, ah, oh, I love these kids. I want them to be in my force. Um, and they just repeat that with a couple of other characters, and then that's just what how they're just in the background, right? It's just like, you know, and even worse is like Maggie doesn't even get a full episode about that. Like Maggie no. just is automatically just like, oh, I just love these kids, and I will just appear randomly to give exposition anytime it is demanded of me because that is my role in the story, and I will just be that for the whole show. Um, and and it's the constant like sort of utilitarian way that it tries to like sort of employ its characters that it will use them up for an episode where they'll be used by the plot and then they're just sort of in the background forever afterwards never to be used in any meaningful capacity again and it's almost like depressing because you're just sitting there staring at these people some of which like you know the tiger wolf episode's probably one of the best episodes of this whole show it's not a great episode or anything but like compared to what comes after it it's relatively interesting i like the fight with like the weird Django style tequila gundam with like the coffin that is dragging around like that's one of the big highlights of the whole fucking series and then to just see the tiger wolf <laughs> character who's voiced by junichi suabe who's a great voice actor there are lots of very good voice actors of the show wasted on bad characters and you're just like any any amount of potential you maybe could have seen briefly in in an early appearance of a character, you're guaranteed to never be followed up on again because if they're used for an episode, they're just sort of wasted. And Tiger Wolf is the best amongst the lot because he gets a second episode in the second half, a, a privilege not given to any other character in the entire show. No, it is it is so, especially if when you've seen Build Fighters and Build Fighters Tribe, which are both just chock full of like big larger than life vibrant characters i think even if whatever problems you have with try it's obvious that is a show with lots of characters they can cut to at any moment and have fun interactions and fun jokes and all sorts of things right um and it's just nothing there's just nothing you can cut to that is interesting in this show and it is and you can even see where the analogs are like you know kyoya kujo is very clearly our meijin kawaguchi analog mm -hmm. and meijin kawaguchi is fucking hilarious in Gundam Build Fighters and especially in Tri, where he becomes very much like a comedic like figure on the side, and he's great. And you have you have Lady Kawaguchi and all that stuff, right? And it's great. None of that, just no charisma, no sense of like the why the self seriousness is silly. It's just it, it completely falls flat. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I think probably the character actually because I'm looking at the list of characters from the show. I think maybe the character the show does best is actually Doji, the little brother of the Oni dude, because he right. gets, like, three episodes, basically, right? He gets one, like, I think it's basically episode one, right, where he fights them at the beginning, and it's and so he, he like, sort of, you know, is basically ganking newbies in the starter zone to yes. roll out my WoW terminology from forever ago. Um, but that's what he's doing, you know, um, and, and that's fine. And then at the midpoint of the show, you have the break uh, decal stuff, where he uses it. It's one of the most, like, sort of set up plot points in the whole show. You know, he actually, there's like a little bit of a buildup to the moment where he actually does that. It's like, okay, and he, so he cheats in the game and, you know, you, and you've met his older brother character. So that has some setup that you can see. And then he gets 
Um, what is a very, like, weird episode in the second half where it's him and Yuki, the best friend character, which felt like a very, re a real Hail Mary to try to give Yuki an episode at, like, 18 or 17, whatever it is. <laughs> it's, like, a bit late to try to give the best friend character any, like, real narrative material. It's too late for that. But it completes Doji's character arc where he apologizes and is sort of, and he sort of, like, comes around to be their friend. And it's, like, you know... This is about the most complimentary I can be to that show. Is that like that's a legitimate character arc for a supporting character that he appears like I think a reasonable number of times across the course of the show, once near the beginning, once at the middle, and once at the end, that traces a full character arc. And he's voiced by Matsuoka Yoshitsugu, you know, Inosuke Inosuke from Demon Slayer, from, yeah. From Demon Slayer, or for me, very notably in this context, the main character Kirito from Sword Art Online, which is very funny. I was very I was very desperate at the end of the show to have just Doji rip off his like digital avatar and be like, I'm actually the main character of Sword Art Online. I'm gonna put all these people in like VR jail for trying to kill this girl <laughs> and just have this be secret sort out of online season five or some shit would have been great it would have been a way better ending to the show for me if that's how this went unfortunately it didn't go that way but you've got a good voice actor playing a supporting character that appears a couple of times it has an actual character arc doji might be the most successful thing in this entire fucking show probably and that is a damning statement because yeah. he would be the least interesting thing in literally any other gundam show i'm pretty sure uh-huh yeah um there is there is so little to talk about in terms of plot and individual episodes. <laughs> you know, I think my favorite episode of this show is the one where they go to the Bear Guy Festival because at the very least, the animators had a lot of fun doing cool visual gags and like fun Easter eggs with the Bear Guy Festival. It's not a great episode in terms of plot or anything, but I did take a lot of screenshots of the Bear Guy Festival because there are funny things going on there because Bear Guy is a funny idea. That's the best this show's got for me. And then we're into the break decals arc, which sucked. <laughs> yeah, I think the fe the festival one's interesting because it almost is like in one episode is very illustrative of like the two like sort of like opposite halves that destroy each other of the show. Yes. Because yes, I kind of agree that the first half of the festival episode is like, it's fine. It's fun. It's like, it would be... If you, it would be the worst episode to go to Build Fighters and Build Fighters try, but you could see it broadly being in one of those shows of like, oh, there's the bear guy stuff. You get to have a bunch of background Gundam jokes and do your Disneyland stuff, but it's like the white base instead of the Disney castle. You know, like that stuff's reasonably fun. Um, if the characters had any characterization to them, that would have been like a decent little thing. But then the second half of that episode is where they meet these two random ladies who show up again at the end of the uh, show. And I was very confused for a while until I realized, oh, it's those two girls from the festival episode. Um, and this is where they really introduce the break decal stuff kind of in earnest because one of the two girls uses the break decals to try to win the like treasure hunt thing contest yes. at the end of the festival. And it gets like out of nowhere it gets so intensely self-serious where she's like crying and screaming about it's like i just don't want to hold my friends back i need to be strong i need to be powerful ah and she's screaming like as if the break decal thing is hurting her somehow which obviously can't be because it's just a vr thing and riku's screaming at her like how could you do this don't you understand like you're destroying the very world you're trying to protect what is it's like it's so over the top and self serious again with nothing to undercut any of this shit. It's so crazy and it comes 
out of nowhere, you've never met these two ladies everywhere, anywhere before, other than like five minutes before this plot starts happening. And this happens like after you just had half an episode about characters standing around and enjoying the Bear Guy Festival, where like the most notable thing that happened is that IMA was like too sheepish and stoic to reveal that she really was excited about petting a fucking Bear Guy. You know, like that's that's what we just saw. Now we have Riku like screaming at this lady who's breaking down into tears at her own powerlessness about how she's destroying the very thing that connects her relationship and her friends together while her friend is also crying. Being like, no, how could you betray me? And all this shit. And it's just saying this, like, this is insane. Who wrote this and thought that this, like, dramatic bullshit would ever be able to be pulled off like that? And then the thing that's especially crazy is that that is the episode before the Doji episode where Doji does the exact same thing. Only with Doji, it's a character we've seen before. So at least it's been set up. But, like, it's one of the things that really hurts the Doji episode is that they are literally just repeating the plot you just saw in the previous episode, but with two characters you had never met before. Um, and so even in an episode that is, like, one of the few, I would agree, like, high points, relatively speaking, and relatively is doing a lot of work in that sentence, um, relatively speaking in this show, it, it is also one of the episodes that I think really highlights the deficiencies of the show's entire approach to, like, plot and character. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, and it's like, it's, it's where my eyes glaze over. Right, the first half of that episode, I'm having fun with the bear guy visuals, and then it becomes the break decal melodrama, and my eyes just that. That's where there's a lot of this show, Sean, where I'm checking my phone uh-huh. and like, oh yeah, and like testing my Japanese of how much I can, I can understand without watching the subtitles. Which you know what, for this show, it's a lot <laughs> because yep. even if I didn't know Japanese. They're not saying anything important, so it's easy. Um, yeah. Anyway, the fucking yeah. It's it's all it's all so bad. And then we get to the coalition of volunteers and taking down the break decals. And my problem with this arc, which is probably the best sustained stretch of the show, because at least there's oh, yeah. a plot. Uh-huh. The problem is, I want the villain to win. The villain's right. The villain. The ostensible villain is a guy who's mad that we stopped playing with the Plavsky Particle stuff, which is the coolest shit in the world, and wants to bring down GBN. And at this point in the show, I'm already fully on that, and I haven't even seen GBN descend into a murder mob, which Uh it will. Which I think really proves this guy right, that the majority of people in GBN are potential fucking murderers. This guy's right. We got to take it down. I think the break decals were a great idea. He's got the right idea. He's an evil Haro who's telling people now who's crying because he was crying in an earlier scene and it's making me laugh really hard, primarily because the show doesn't treat it as a joke, which is why it's so funny. Uh. Um, yeah. So the biggest deficiency of this arc is that I just, I'm opposing the heroes and that is, you know, kind of sad, but you know, it's vaguely interesting. Yeah, I'm 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 with you that. I mean, this is the best sustained episode because it's it's the one the best sustained series of episodes again, relatively speaking for the show um because it is it has the most plot stuff and the plot stuff isn't making me want to rip my hair out like the similar arc at the end of the show where it gets very heavy on the melodrama. Um uh and one thing really quick just cuz I want to mention it before I forget on the tears line. One of the funniest things that they do is I think it's uh, episode 12 is the the penultimate episode of this arc um, where where that happens, where he reveals that he's like an actual Hado and all that shit. And in that in one of those scenes, I think it's Tiger Wolf delivers this very 
like cliche anime line of where the main characters like or the villain character is off on his crazy rant and he's like i've got to destroy this world because i hate all this shit and then tiger wolf says very dramatically then why are you crying um and, and he's like ah and the villain runs away which again is a very cliche anime line the reason why i mention that is because they then do the exact same thing in the next fucking episode because the episode after that there's a scene with that character at the end with Koichi, where it's the same thing, where it's Skasa, the villain character, is going off and off about, like, oh, I hate all this shit, blah, 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 blah. And then Koichi goes, then why are you crying? And then it cuts to Sakasa and he's standing in the rain and tear and, and raindrops, or are they tears, are flowing down his cheeks. It's <laughs> like, man, show. It's like, you can sure take cliche lines from other anime, but you sure don't know how to use them. Um, but yes, the break decal stuff is bad uh in just the same i just agree everything with what you said that the show has not engendered any positivity towards gbn towards these characters or anything like that and if you've watched build fighters and even if you know you've watched try and like me you don't even like try that much even then like you the audience has that comes from those shows has a predisposed bias towards those shows because build fighters is so incredibly fucking good um, so you got to really kind of lay your mark and kind of distinguish build divers and GBN from that stuff. And for all the reasons we said about their bad world building, they fail to do that utterly. So then when a character comes about that's threatening the destruction of this world, you're like, kind of like, yeah, I mean, at the very, like, at the very least, you're not rooting against him. Like the, the, you know, the most on the side of the protagonist you are that you don't care whether or not the world is destroyed because... You're, you as the audience have not been made to care about this world or fall in love with it in any way. And so when Riku goes off and has his like big protagonist speech about how like how much he loves this place and how it, it is just as valid or real as anything else because the memories and the people we've met here and their feelings and emotions in this place are real and is what makes it real, which is a speech I want to be clear about. I 100% agree with like, you know, we're video game people. Like, you know, World of Warcraft, like in playing World of Warcraft as a kid is one of my favorite experiences with, experiences with video games. I fundamentally agree with Riku's core position in a real world scenario that if they put it in a like reasonable package, I would be totally on board with the idea of like saying, no, this like virtual world isn't fake. It isn't meaningless because we give it meaning through our experiences with it. And it has value to people is a thing that I am strongly predisposed to agree with, but they're so bad at this show that like, I just don't care. Um, and since I, they haven't told an effective story about GBN and how it's important to people. And since I don't care about these characters or their friendships, like, I'm like, yeah, Skaza can blow it up. It doesn't really matter to me because it, it there's no weight or consequence or concern or emotion felt on my part towards this setting and its characters. It's also just like, what does destroying GBN mean? Is uh -huh. there not a backup of the game? Can you not roll back to version 2.5 if version 2.6 gets destroyed? Why is it the job of the Coalition of Volunteers to go do this? Why, <laughs> well, like, why is this one hacker able to bring down like this game's World of Warcraft with you know? It's just it's like all this stupid shit that like in a better show you'd be able to look past, but in this show it's all you can think about because there's nothing else to pay attention to, you know. And in general, I think the decision to set this nominally in the same world as Gundam Build Fighters is just a terrible choice. Like, this would be a much easier pill to swallow. It wouldn't make it a better show, but it would make... It, I would be less distracted 
if this were just a different line of continuity. If the Plavsky particles never existed, if there was never GPD, no, if none of that was there and this was just a separate world where instead of, you know, in, in Gundam World 2, they're playing, you know, with their GPD and in Gundam World 3, they play with a virtual reality thing, that would just be such an easier pill to swallow in part because they never, ever, ever take advantage of being in the world of Gundam Build Fighters. They never bring yeah. in any of those characters. Like, if you're going to do that arc with the break decals, the fun thing to do would be to have Tsukasa be someone we knew from one of the Build Fighter shows who is now crotchety about it. Like, I joked that it would be funny if Ayori Sei grew up and just decided to become a VR terrorist, but you had the better idea of it's Mission Kawaguchi, uh -huh. just super bitter trying to bring down GBN. Either of those would be great. It could be a more minor side character. That would be the fun thing to do and then bring them into GBN and have them realize why GBN is cool. You could absolutely make a good story out of that. This show is so inept it can't even vaguely gesture in that direction. Yeah, exactly. It's and it's something of where I'm not even entirely clear if the show is meant to be set in the same continuity or if it's just a similar continuity where there was a similar thing to the Gundam Battles from Build, Build Fires and Build Fires Tribe, but not the exact same thing. But it's impossible to tell because it's so nonspecific that, yeah, it would have been smarter just not to sort of broach that topic at all if you, if you weren't really prepared to do it well because it just sort of... It gives the audience who has seen the other shows kind of an out almost on your Build Divers show that like you've 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 given them like an escape hatch back into the shows that they like. And so it, it's easy to sort of like lose any attempted investment in Build Divers because you're just like, no, I want to just see them do it the old way, especially when like without a doubt, the best action sequence in the whole show is the GP duel, like actual like models fighting each other. Yeah, easily the best fight in the whole show. Um, and it's like they almost should have like intentionally made it an awful fight just to like prove that just like to uplift their own concept or something because it's very funny that when it becomes the classic gun to build fighter setup it's like one of the only good action scenes in the whole show because it's the only one with anything resembling stakes yes. like because in that moment you riku is acutely aware that the double o ace at that whatever he's calling his double o the first version he makes before the sky like yeah. that one will actually break in this fight so when things happen to it, it's actually happening and it's stuff that will have a consequence. There's a hilarious moment at the end of, it's it's in the finale when he, or maybe the penultimate episode, it's whenever he rescues Sarah and he's like flying his, his Gundam after he beats Kyoya and it's all breaking down. And he's like, goodbye, 00 Sky, thank you. And like it dissolves away and he goes to rescue Sarah. And I'm like, it's fine. The gunpla is still there on your fucking GP base thing. And it's going to respawn. It's fine. What are you talking about? Nothing happened. You're playing a fucking video game. Well, the best part is that he, there's literally then a line. It's either like later in that episode or it's like at the beginning of the next one where where he says that exact thing where it's like there's because the, he the whole thing breaks and he falls down and gets Sarah. Um, it's like, oh, thank you, Gundam. Like, arigato. Gundam 00 Sky, um, and then it cuts back later, and he's like, and he's on the phone with Nanami or someone, he says, yeah, no, I, I got it back from the base after it respawned, because then everybody has another action scene with the raid boss or whatever in the actual last episode, um, and it is fucking hilarious, he's so dramatic, and then he just gets it, and it's one of those places where if the show, like, 
proved that it could do humor intentionally, I would read that scene as like intentionally funny because of how ridiculous the contrast is. But the show seems to have no self-awareness of how fucking stupid that sequence of events is. Another thing this show does in comparison to Gundam Build Fighters is that there's no Gundam in it. Like, uh-huh. there are Gundams. There are the mobile suits. There is the Gundam base in Odaiba. You see the big unicorn Gundam. That's kind of fun. But there is no Gundam in it. Like, there is no equivalent to your Mr. Ral. There are, there's a couple of scenes where you will see people dressing up as, like, Char or something like that. There is one force you briefly meet who are all dressed up as the different masked mm-hmm. characters from the Gundam universe. And there is... The one joke that I think is actually a joke in the entire series is someone uses a line that Mask uses in... Um, or not Mask. It's the, it's the Mask guy from Turn A Gundam. Yeah. And there's universe! A, yes. They do yes. that. That's like the only joke in the whole show. And it's like the only Gundam reference in the whole show. And the only recurring character who is sort of from Gundam is... He never has any lines... But Patrick Colasar uh-huh. from Double O is in this show around the margins showing up in different events just there as a background figure. He's not an actual character. It's not, to our knowledge, like someone obsessed with Patrick Colasar role-playing as him, which is a fun character you could make. Like, I'm obsessed with this random character from Double O Gundam. None of that is in there. So its connections to Gundam are purely aesthetic, and it has no seeming like love of the franchise in the way that Build Fighters and Try, Try doesn't do it as successfully, but it's still there because Mr. Ral is in it, right? So like, it's all in there and that's fun. There's just none of that in here. Yeah, I could have used a lot more of the like themed forces because yeah, that's the best joke in the whole show is having an entire force that is just the different shark clones from different series and then having... uh, yeah, and then having uh, Harry Ord, that's the character of Turn A Gundam, having right. the character, the guy dressed as Harry scream out the universe line from the end of Turn A Gundam is the most fun I had in the whole show. Because yes. of like, because I could point at the screen and say, I saw Turn A Gundam, haha. Um, <laughs> and and the other thing that was fun was playing Where's Waldo with Patrick Colasar from Double O Gundam, who say like inexplicably he must be in the background of at least one shot in every single episode of the show. I mean, it's a constant thing. Um, but like but that's a bad thing if like the most fun i'm having with your show is like waiting around to see like where is is patrick gonna be in the crowd in this scene where is he gonna be (laughs) there's patrick okay let me skip to the next episode i might as well have watched the show that way i would have had a better fucking time um that's really sad that that's like the 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 amount of fun as a gundam fan i'm getting out of your gundam show yeah it's and and why patrick colasar i liked patrick colasar in gundam double o but like when it's you know when it's a Ramba Ral thing, you know it because it's Ramba Ral. It's Patrick. It's just so weird to me. Like where mm-hmm. did that come from? I don't. I don't know. It's it's bizarre. But I think I think we really need to talk about the last arc of the show, Sean. Oh God. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to just like just briefly because I don't think we need to talk about any of these episodes. But we just have to point out that there's like seven episodes after the break decal thing that are just nothing episodes where nothing happens. Oh yeah, um, it's complete filler until the final six. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is brutal. It is completely brutal because it's one thing starting your show with a bunch of nothing episodes where nothing happens, but then when you've even if it's a kind of a bad plot, once you've introduced an actual plot with the break decal stuff. Having to go back to the nothing episodes is just 
hard. It's very hard to start watching those episodes. And this is where I slowed down dramatically in watching Gundam Build Divers. I think it did about one episode a night for a couple of days um, to the point where I ended up watching the last like five episodes of the show basically in one binge yesterday because I had left more of it than I originally intended because of how hard it was to get out, out like through the seven episodes after the midpoint. I was, I was having, I had Sean, I have to admit, last week when we said we were going to finally do this this week, I thought I was five or six episodes into this show. I was only three in. So I had to do Jesus. 23 in this last week. I had to, these six I think I did in one day. I just like pushed through it. It was so hard though. They're terrible. Like, they're all bad. The one where Tiger Wolf and Riku fight is maybe the best of these six because the fight has some cool images, but it's bad. And then you get the one where it's the girls only event in GBN where there's all a, it's inexplicably a fucking marathon in a video game and I'm just I just am tearing my hair out because I don't understand what's going on in the episode um it's it's really it's it's a dire period like I made a tweet saying I think the second core of Gundam Build Divers is the most dire creative period in Gundam history Sean I made that tweet before the Sarah stuff started coming uh -huh. up and like the Sarah stuff really cements I don't think that anymore I know for a fact that is the most dire creative period in Gundam history. But just from these first six, the filler six, I uh, I knew it. Because, man, if you are making a 26-episode anime season and you have six episodes of filler at the start of the second core, you are doing everything wrong. Everything. Yeah. I mean, most anime series are only one core, and this would constitute half of a show's like normal run. Yes. Um, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> Uh, but yes, but then you get the, the, the Sarah saga of Gundam Build Divers. Um, and we haven't really talked about Sarah, you know, because she's a character that is doomed by an awful tendency that some series have, which is to take a character who has some mysterious element of them and hold off the mystery, even if it is like patently obvious to anyone with half a brain what the deal is with the character you hold it off from like the characters and the like actual narrative of the show for like almost the entire thing this is something i remember we pointed out as like a complimentary feature of the original gun to build fighters which is that they don't keep reiji's whole he's a prince from some fantasy kingdom thing under wraps for like 20 episodes or something with only vague implications about it but in episode two of gun to build fighters he tells you that entire story and tells it to say say just doesn't believe him yet at that point but it's something that the show can actively play with and the thing that's very frustrating, I think, is like a big no-no in writing is to think that it is more interesting to have the mystery be, you know, it's the J.J. Abrams mystery box thing. To just have that and be in the background and tease it vaguely all the time, but never actually do something with it. Because the consequence is, once you do have to do something with it, it's now too late because you spent 20 fucking episodes of your show vaguely teasing the fact that there's obvious to like anyone who watched the first five minutes of the first episode where Sarah's introduced that she's not a human, that she is an AI girl that is like seemingly spontaneously created within the virtual reality of GBN. They give some bullshit explanation of like, it's the excess feelings for people's gunpla that gets converted into data and has congealed into Sarah as a sapient AI, which is kind of a nonsense whatever, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, she's an AI. They, it is something where the character has not been able to be characterized. Her relationships with other characters have not been able to be explored in any way for the entire show because they waited until episode 20 to fucking say that. 
Um, and then once that's revealed, you find out that because Sarah is an AI and she's growing, that she's putting a strain on the servers of uh, the game, GBN, um, and is causing bugs that will eventually, quote, destroy this world um, of GBN. And so what happens is that the administrators and the coalition of other builders find out about this and they basically construct a giant lynch mob with the express purpose of murdering <laughs> Sarah, who again is a miraculous sapient AI spontaneously generated in this virtual world that is so indistinguishable from a normal 13-year-old girl that these people have spent months with her and never realized, even when they probably should have realized that there's some weird shit because she never seems to have logged out, um, but they never realized there's anything weird about her, which is like the most thorough Turing test thing you could possibly do. <laughs> so yes. She's clearly just a human being who should have human rights and all that shit. They decide they're going to fucking execute her through lynch mob in order to keep their gbn game from breaking and and there is they constantly are using the term they're going to patch her out which i think is an incredibly <laughs> funny way to say we're going to murder this ai by patching her out of the game um and so then of course uh riku and friends get together to try to fight um like half of the supporting cast of the show that have joined the lynch mob into in order to save sarah <laughs> and it is the most insane fucking plot I have seen in a long fucking time. The, the like, this is the worst quote-unquote moral dilemma I think I've ever seen a piece of fiction try to offer up to the audience. Do you A, save the life of this 13-year-old girl who also, is, her entire existence revolutionizes your ideas of what it means to be alive and what like existence is and all kinds of important and meaningful scientific and philosophical questions? That's option A. Or option B, do you play World of Warcraft and kill her in order to do so? Those are your two options. <laughs> yes, it is. Do we murder a 13-year-old girl so that we can continue playing a video game or no. Like, that is the moral <laughs> dilemma, and it is insane. Because, to be semi-fair to the show for a second, the show is on Team Save Sarah. That is the protagonist's position. Yeah. That is where the show ends up. The people in the lynch mob admit that they were wrong at the end. That is the point. But, the show also presents it as a nuanced debate where there is no antagonist. There is no, like... Yes heel character who was like this you know the snidely whiplash you know with like a fucking mustache twirling in the background of the show for like the first 20 episodes who comes out as like the douchebag who's like lighting the torches there is no like in fact the person leading the coalition is our Meijin Kawaguchi figure it's Kyoya yes. who is supposed to be like the most noble character in the show he is the champion he is the voice of reason he is you know he is your Joe Manchin or Mitt Romney in the middle of the political spectrum you know bringing the two sides together to talk about should we do the fascism or not right yes. you know that the reasonable centrist in the middle who really is that makes you a bad guy if you're in yeah, that position he's just the so one you know who's like he he doesn't really want to kill sarah he feels bad about it but he's still on their side you know yes. it's like it's he's in many ways the most despicable one because it's like i'm still fighting for the scenario where she's like brutally executed by this patch or whatever and like she snuff her existence out for all time but i'm going to be sad about it when it happens um is basically his position Yes, so because this is a show with no antagonist and it wants you to like everyone in a very slice-of-life anime sort of way, right? Uh -huh. 
when you get to this part, it wants you to believe that everyone kind of has a reasonable point of view. And it gives Riku and the other characters all this self-doubt of like, but is it is it selfish to sacrifice our video game to save the first sentient artificial life ever created in human history? And no one ever engages with the actual stakes of the question. It's just uh-huh. like, we like Sarah, and that's almost presented selfishly, because Riku even uses the word selfish in the final episodes to, like, apologize for what he did, which is insane. No one ever... There's never a scene where, like, the characters sit down and go, but maybe creating sentient artificial life is more important than our video game. That is never acknowledged. They acknowledge the ways the game is important, which... In an abstract sense, I agree with if there were a Matrix VR video game that allowed, you know, a paraplegic to walk again in an artificial environment, I would agree that's important. But I would also say it's not as important as the life of a 13-year-old girl. Even then, like, I have to believe that if you were in a wheelchair, or I'll just say for myself, if I was in a wheelchair, I lose, if I lost use of my legs, but I was in a, there was a virtual world that allowed me to walk again, I would not want a 13-year-old girl to die to take that away from me, right? Like, I have to believe we are that moral as a people. And this show is basically, like, putting that in the... It's it's such a... And it's, like, it's really actually kind of gross when you think about it that they put the idea of, like... They don't ever use the word, like, paraplegic or something, but the idea there... They're kind of, like, scapegoating disabled people as the reason to kill Sarah is extra gross when you, like, take that out to its sort of nth degree. But, yeah, it is this big... There's an actual philosophical question going on here, which is, like, the nature of life. The philosophical question should not be, do we kill that life so we can play World of Warcraft more? <laughs> I mean, the thing that's the the probably the most insane part of the whole way the plot is constructed is that like there are dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of media that have a thing like this where there is an AI, a robot, a mutant, a whatever like an, an extraordinary existence has been created whose who the nature of that existence like has a lot of like powerful implications about philosophy and science and all that kind of stuff. And the plot is typically about there is some antagonist who wants to exploit that thing's existence for their like personal profit and gain. And then other people who want to stop that from from happening. Right. Like I want to I'm going to get this alien and dissect it or whatever. Like that's what that plot structure normally is about. And it's like if there's a reason why that's a cliche is because if you want to tell that kind of story that's a good antagonist to have because you can have it be something where you could understand their perspective that from their perspective they see a lot is going to be gained for them by doing this awful horrible thing so that the like villain psychology of it works but that also it's very clear that you can have your your main characters take the moral high ground and assert that like a something's right to exist and it's right to life is more important than your like personal capitalistic or like scientific pursuits that's a good plot that plots up for grabs you could just do it gun to build divers and instead they're like what if we present a dilemma where it's like either you get to play your video game or and murder this girl or you have the girl lives but unfortunately we take your playstation away everybody um that's basically (laughs) what they do and it's it's just so stupid and it makes like the next like the final five episodes of the show 
is constantly characters trying to present some kind of argument or reasoning for why they're going to allow Sarah to be killed. And then the protagonist offering this very limp, but like, it's Sarah. <laughs> That's like the most they can offer. Like nobody gives a strong like argument for it, even though it's a very easy argument to make. And having to suffer through that for again like five episodes is crazy. I mean, when I got to the truth episode and then I realized that that's episode 20 of 25, I was like, how the fuck are there five more episodes after this? Like, it feels like after the truth episode, there should be like two episodes top to wrap up the show. They spend five fucking episodes going on and on and on with this shit. It is interminably long. Um, it, it's utterly bizarre. And it, it is the thing that, like, really turned me off of the show because I, as I, I made a tweet about it, a very rare, just, like, unprompted tweet by me on a Gundam show I was watching uh, where I said, I wasn't expecting in the shockingly long home stretch of Gundam Build Divers to become so resentful of the setting and characters that I'm now earnestly hoping that the end of this show has GBN irrevocably destroyed and half the supporting cast in jail. But here we are. And that it was exactly what I was feeling. I was feeling up to the end of the show that I was like, the, the protagonist's perspective is that they're arguing we're going to both save Sarah and protect GBN. We found a way to try to do both. It's just very risky. Um, and I would say they're thinking, fuck GBN. Fucking burn it to the ground. Like, whether, like, you save Sarah, you don't save Sarah, whatever happens, GBN has got to go. Because clearly, it's a bad thing. <laughs> Right? Like, if I'm a member of a community and then I discover that community has, like, assembled a massive lynch mob that's going to murder somebody, <laughs> I'm like, I've got to get out of this community. I'm, I'm going to call the cops and I'm fucking gone. Because it's like, GBN cannot be a thing anymore. You can't break bread with the people who wanted to fucking, like, execute this little girl. That's insane. I'm out of here. And anything that is not basically that position once you've created this plot, to me, is unreasonable. Sean, you... You love Genshin Impact more than I think I've ever loved anything. And I love oh. Genshin Impact a lot, but you really love that game. You play it every day. If you found out the continued existence of Genshin Impact depended on murdering a 13-year-old girl, and you then found out that upwards of half of all Genshin Impact players were in favor of killing the little girl, would you still play Genshin Impact? No. No, God, no. It's like, how could you, like, you just never be able to play that game and and not be thinking about that constantly, you know? And it's so insane. <laughs> and it's brutal. There's this scene between Tiger Wolf and Shafri where he says, like, do you think we should erase Sarah lest she cause the end of GBN? And Shafri says, if GBN's collective will deems her to be undesirable, then yes. And I'm like... That's what people doing genocide say. Like, yeah. that is such a, like, that is such deep nihilism of, like, should we do murder? If the collective will desires it, then yes. I mean, God, what a horrible... And then Shafri, by the way, just heel turns between episodes and comes to the good guys, which makes no sense, but whatever. Well, like, you find out that his whole thing is that he was, like, he was on the side of the coalition, you know, trying to kill Sarah... 
entirely just because he wanted to have, quote, unquote, a real fight with Tiger Wolf, which is like, <laughs> well, fuck you, dude. Like, you're going to, like, risk this girl's life just so you can, like, have a real, quote, unquote, real fight, which it's not. You're playing a fucking video game. But you have a real <laughs> fight with Tiger Wolf. Um, and that's, like, seems reasonable to you. It's like, once again, this is, if, if you know, we had our last episode where a bunch of the characters meet up or whatever, and they're going to go hang out at the bar or at the karaoke bar, um, and I saw that, oh, oh fucking Kyoya and Shafri showed up. Sorry, guys, uh, something came up. I got to go home. Um, and I would just, like, bounce out of that little social gathering as soon as this fucker showed up if I found out that that was his attitude um, towards this because that is, like, a non-negotiable we cannot, I'm blocking you, um, I'm never going to talk to you <laughs> if I ever see you again, like, I can't associate with these people in any way, shape, or form because I, you know, maybe it's just me but I feel very personally strongly against murdering children that's just my position in the world I think it's really bad <laughs> And it's a bridge that cannot be crossed. That's my that's my moral stance on the thing. And it is extra dissonant because for the first 19 of 25 episodes, this show has no stakes. None. Uh -huh. None whatsoever. Honestly, Gundam Build Divers is a great object lesson in why sports anime do tournament arcs, right? Uh -huh. Because a tournament arc, which is what both Gundam Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try do, and I think you and I agree, Try does it less successfully than Build Fighters, but even in Build Fighters Try, the tournament is just an automatic focusing mechanism to give your show personal clear stakes. I yes. want to win the tournament, which means I want to win this fight, and then this fight, and then this fight. Tournaments are something that anime and lots of fiction have used forever because it is just a great way to give your story structure and shape and obvious, clear stakes limited to your corner of the world, right? Build Fighters and Build Fighters Try are not about saving the world. They're about winning the tournament. But you don't care that the stakes are not world level because it's very clearly established the stakes of this little corner of the world and these characters. Gundam Build Divers can't even manage that. So its highest stakes thing in those first 19 episodes is the break decal stuff. But the worst thing that's going to happen is they can't play GBN anymore. And I don't give a shit about that. And there's been no reason for that. So, you know... Gundam Bill Divers would be saved if it did something like a tournament anywhere in there because it would help so much, but they never ever do that. So for 19 episodes, zero stakes, no stakes, anti-drama, and then the last six episodes, do we murder the little girl or not? It is the so jumping the fucking shark. You are just careening over the shark in terms of going from no stakes to higher stakes than either of the other build shows ever engage with. It's crazy. Yeah, like, Jonathan, can you imagine if the end of Gundam Build Fighters was that everybody found out that, like, Reiji's continued existence means that, like, you will never be able to do Gundam battles again, so half the characters decide they're going to fucking hang Reiji in order to try to, like, keep Gundam fights alive? Like, it's just such an insane plot point that trying to sort of, like, extrapolate it onto other similar shows is completely insane. Yeah. I mean, I just try doing this with other slice of life shows, Sean. Like, oh what if the end of Polar Bear Cafe, the polar bear and the penguin decided they were going to go kill the grizzly bear and, and Panda is having to decide, am I okay with this? You know, like, what the fuck? It is just complete fucking madness. Like, the show just utterly loses its goddamn mind 
at the end. And then the other part of it is is also that nothing ever addresses the like world shattering miracle that is Sarah's entire existence. Yes, like at the the last episode it has her like she gets transferred into a like weirdly like Gundam sized body, which I for whatever reason in my head when they were doing this plan, I thought she's going to be like normal human size and so what she's like a little tiny doll i'm like this is weird i you know you could have made it like a normal human size i'm kind of uncomfortable that she's just like in someone's pocket or whatever is like weird um but whatever they they transfer this like sapient ai out of this virtual reality again a sapient ai that nobody even made on purpose she just spontaneously came into existence like fucking jesus christ or some shit um, and they transfer her out of the the virtual world into a little toy that she can spontaneously, like, of her own will move. Um, and nobody talks about it. Like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> it doesn't become world news. They don't even talk about trying to keep it a secret. There is no attention or concern paid for the fact <laughs> that this has just happened. And it's particularly bizarre because it, it, it broadly resembles the arc from Season 3 of Sword Art Online, which is about... Um, a, an organization trying to create an artificial human through the virtual reality technology, and they eventually succeed. They make a character named Alice, and the end of that arc is Alice being put into an artificial body and coming into the real world. And the last episode of that arc is all about, like, human rights. Like, does she have human rights? Like, what did, like what happens? And it's like the world, it, there's a massive press conference, and the world is stunned to discover this has happened, and now has to confront with the reality of that we can create artificial life, and what do we do with that as a society? Which I, and that's like the most the anime has adapted, and I imagine that that is something that the next story arc of Sword Art Online probably deals with heavily. So the idea of, like, taking that same broad idea, but just being like, no, she's just in the world, and we're not going to question it. We're not going to ask anything about it. The cops don't have to get involved. The government doesn't have to know about it. Um, it's like the most impressed anyone by is by it is like the weird bird thing that was the creator of Gundam Build Divers or whatever the fuck that character, Tori character is. I mean, she's just like, oh, this is she's a miraculous existence. But apparently she's not that interested enough in Sarah to like investigate that further in any way. It's just now she's just alive and that's it and nobody is concerned about that ever it's just it's totally fine and normal now the proper ending to this show would be in the midst of the big final force battle the fucking everything gets shut down and suddenly the prime minister of japan is like beamed in going we are seizing this game we are yeah. seizing all of these assets we are going to investigate the existence of digital life because this is clearly a society level problem now you can fuck off and play a different game idiots I mean the 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 main antagonists of that arc of Sword Art Online are like a a like mercenary squad in America hired by the CIA to investigate this Japanese research facility and try to steal the technology before it becomes publicly available. Like that's how concerned it is about this being like a foreign, like international, like world level thing. And so it's just fucking crazy to see this show just like toss it off as if it was nothing. It is, it is deeply weird. As much of this show is. And at least, you know, at least those last few episodes are weird in kind of an interesting, like, funny way. Uh, as funny, horrifying. Uh-huh. But still, you know, kind of funny. It is, you know, it is at least slightly more engaging than a lot of the rest of the show. It Just engaging in a way where I'm pulling my fucking hair out. 
Yes, it becomes a, like, incredibly boring show into an actively bad show that is, like, in yes. your face about how bad it is. Like, it legitimately, some of that stuff made me almost a little bit, like, sick to my stomach in terms of, like, the how how gross the fake moral quandary was um, and seeing characters, like, advocate for her death in this, like, offhanded way that I thought was just, it's incredibly distasteful to me. Um, and I don't usually have a reaction like that to media that much, but there's something about this one that I was like, you can't, this is, this is beyond the pale. Like this is so poorly executed and so insane. <laughs> Nobody thought this through at all. Um, that it's like, it, it is like, I, I would say that it is offensive to my sensibilities is how I would describe the last five episodes of Gundam Build Divers. I think that's fair. Uh, not offensive to my sensibilities, but not interesting either. I think the animation and character designs are very bland. Uh-huh. I think the direction of this show is stranded a lot by the, you know, writing and whatnot. But it's never very interesting. The music, as you say, is... You know, the music in Build Fighters has so much attitude to it. Uh-huh. It's the same thing like a Jujutsu Kaisen does with its music. Where it's just got a fucking attitude that's really fun and like feels like it, 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 it illustrates something about the show. And the music for Build Divers you could put on seven different other shows. It, it, it does not feel specific to this show in any interesting or compelling way. Um, you know, all of that. It's just, it feels like a very low effort show to me in all of those other ways yeah i agree that nothing else stands out um like you you did post on twitter the most inexplicable oh, right. piece of animation of this show which is in the the uh like race episode the marathon episode not not race like ethnicity that thank god this episode this show doesn't go there of the like marathon episode um there's this one shot where it's just a panning shot of like a, the group of like the crowd of the main characters talking and for whatever reason, IMA the ninja girl is there and she's just like bouncing up and down. And like a generous reading of it in context is that it's meant to be her like warming up by sort of like bouncing on her feet. But it just looks like someone took the character model uh, in like, you know, their like digital program or whatever and just dragged it up and down at a constant rate to make it look like she's jumping, but she's not jumping. But it's no not way. at a constant rate. It's like really juddery and like... It, what it really looks like to me is like if you took an animation cell and just were like sliding it up and down in front of the camera. It's so awkward and it's got this weird little bouncy sound effect. It is the most baffling cut in all of Gundam. Yeah, it just, it looks like an error or something. Like it looks yes. like someone left it in by accident. Um, it looks like the kind of thing that would usually get corrected for the Blu-ray. Like, yes. you know, there's lots of like bad animation days that in modern anime, you know... They go up on on day one, and then a couple weeks later, they're fixed, right? Um, yes. This is one of those. It's really weird that it is, like, still there. Yeah, and looking at the clip again, because, again, you have it on your Twitter, um, it also reminded me of Momo. Momo looks fine in this scene, but Momo is the character that I feel like maybe, like, half the time she's on screen, she is drawn off model. For whatever reason, that character, <laughs> they just could not ever fucking draw on model. Um, she also has, like, the most generic character design in the game with just this, like, pink-haired cat girl. Um, yes. But yeah, like just generally the animation is not good. You know, I mean, there no. every once in a while there will be an action sequence where there's good animation in it um, because it is still Sunrise, you know, like it's still Gundam. There's going to be some good stuff in there, but it's always undercut by the fact that the rest of the staging and the writing and the direction, all that around anytime there is a good spot of animation, just uh, none of it is able to be effective in the context of the rest of the show. Yeah, it's uh 
it's bad. The theme songs. Three of the four, I don't give a shit about. Uh-huh. The first opening, Divers High, that's a great song. Yes, Divers High is is easily the best part of the whole kind of Bill sure. Divers yeah. experience. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a certified good... banger. It's so good. The The TV cut down, you know, the 90 second version makes the absolutely genius choice of it uses the second version of the chorus uh-huh. from the full show, which is where most of the instrumentation drops out. And the singer goes into this big falsetto and it's like, ah, it's like really good. Uh, and it's just got, it's it just, that was the best part of each of the first 13 episodes was watching Divers High. I have listened to the song a lot. That's great. It's the one good thing that came out of this show. Yeah, because I'm with you. The other three songs, like some of them are fine. Like I like the second opening, okay. You know, I like the first ending, okay. The second ending is, made no impression on me. Um, the thing, one of the things I like about Divers High is, especially you know, now that we're well into modern anime, um, which I've seen so so much of, is it's always just nice to have something that feels different. And there's something about Divers High has this very fun march beat to the song. Yes, um, that is very different than a kind of standard J rock thing. Um, and that's one of the things I, I enjoy about it is it just stands out so much. Like as soon as the song starts, you know immediately, oh, this is the song from Gundam Build Divers. Um, whereas because this song has been on my playlist for Gundam songs forever because I've watched the show, like the opening of the show back in the day. Um, and and every time the show, I, it's never a song that when I hear it, I'm like, oh, what's this song again? Is this like a Naruto one or something? It's like, no, this is this is a song from Gundam Build Divers. It is very distinctive. Um, you know, I wish it could be for a better show, but hey, it is what it is. You know, we yeah, we'll take what we can get. Uh, and I agree. And I think it's that it's that sort of march guitar lick that kind of underlies the song. And it's that the first half is like this rap, you know, version, <laughs> and then it goes into this big kind of sweeping J rock thing. It's a really nice mixture. Um, it's a very fun song, and easily, easily the best thing about this entire show. Uh, not worth watching the whole fucking thing. Go watch, you know, the 90-second Divers High opening, and you will have seen the best of Gundam Build Divers. I, yeah, I think that's the best recommendation we can make here. Yes. And I just gotta say, Sean, if you fuckers are lying about Gundam Build Divers Rerise, I am turning this podcast around and we are going home. I mean, it's the thing is, Gundam Build Divers Rerise, or Gundam Build Divers Rerise, is the, it's the last thing. I mean, it's the, it so is. far. I mean... You know, there's like a couple of weird corners of like Thunderbolt and stuff like that. We'll have to figure out how in, in what context to do some of that kind of stuff. But in terms of like full shows, as of right now, Rerise is the next thing. Again, I'm I'm I think I think we're both on the same pages. We're not going in expecting it to be like the greatest Gundam show ever. I'm keeping expectations very much in in check. But like, I'm just praying it's at least as good as Build Fighters Try for me, as someone who doesn't even like Build Fighters Try that much. <laughs> Like, that's at least a fully watchable show. If it can at least be that, like, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be satisfied with that, you know? <laughs> that, that's what I'm hoping. That's the bar I'm setting um, for my expectations. Yes. So that'll be the next episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. Uh, we might try to fit in Thunderbolt before the third year anniversary podcasts, but in June, it will be year three anniversary of this podcast, which means... It's going to be time for a whole shitload of rankings, and I think it's going to have to be more than one episode for our anniversary episodes this year. And I am looking forward to those because we've got a whole lot of stuff to rank. Yep, we're we're coming to the the end of the like whatever the this version of the podcast is because we're running out of do Gundam stuff to do, which is weird. Um, but I do think it's very exciting that this deep into this project, Jonathan, we have found something that is so competitive for the very bottom of the list. <laughs> 